Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about Doctor Who! Doctor Who. Yes, uh, it is finally time. We're back to talk about Doctor Who. We took a week off, basically because both of us were in uh, suspended animation until Doctor Who came back. We just couldn't take the excitement, right, Sean? Yes, no, we had to conserve ourselves. You know, I turned the temperature way down in my house and just bundled up into a little ball waiting for Doctor Who to happen. Yeah, and now that it has finally happened, we have come out of our cocoons. We are ready to talk about the show. Uh, if you do not listen to this podcast or are not on Twitter or something, you might not know. Doctor Who came back today for its 11th modern season, its 37th season overall, and its 55th year of existence with the new 13th Doctor, Jodie Whittaker, new showrunner, Chris Chibnall. New everything. Like, literally nothing yeah. on the show is not new at this point. Um, you know, the fuck it. The TARDIS might not even be a police box. We didn't see it in this episode. So who knows? It's true. Every, everything is new except for the messy conclusions. That's yes. still very Doctor Who. Well, we will talk about that in a minute. That will be our main topic today, of course. If you do not listen to us regularly, uh, you might not know, but we talk about Doctor Who a lot on here. It is our favorite show. Sean has seen every episode ever made. I have seen many episodes ever made, including all of the modern ones, many of the classic ones, and we love the show, and when there are new episodes, we talk about new episodes and that's awesome. Uh, as you might have heard today, the, when this is released, Monday, October 8th, is my birthday. I think this is the first episode we've ever released on one of my birthdays. Um, yeah. And we finally get to talk about Doctor Who on one of my birthdays, because usually we're talking about it on your birthday, since you share a birthday with the show itself. Yes, but it is, you know, it's, again, it's like star-crossed something over here. We are all connected in the great cycle of Doctor Who. We are all one, yes. Jonathan. So, for the next 10 weeks, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who every week on here. But fear not, if it's not your thing, you have no heart. But, you know, when you, if you find a heart and you watch Doctor Who, eventually you can listen to that. But we will also have other non-Doctor Who related topics, including this week, uh, a bunch of news from over the last two weeks. We're going to be talking about some movie trailers and some video game announcements and things like that, as well as some other stuff. Before we get into the stuff in the news, Sean, do you want to do the quick spoiler-free two-sentence reaction to today's Doctor Who, just for the people who are excited? Yeah, sure. So I think I gave it a little bit in that it is... It, so it is a very new sort of look to the show. It's got a bit more of a different kind of style, and it's focused on, like, the character stuff a bit more, and I was really interested in that. You can definitely feel Chris Chibnall's experience from Broadchurch coming over to this, and all of that side of the show I think is really well done. I love Jodie Whittaker to death. She's amazing. Um, but it is a little bit of a messy first episode, I feel, and, like, the the core monster plot is a bit weird and, like, not all kind of baked, and then it has, like, a very... It was almost kind of heartwarming that it had this very classic, messy Doctor Who kind of conclusion to the A-plot <laughs> that was like, okay, like, there's a lot of stuff on this show that feels very different now, but feel right at home with how, like, that whole plot just got wrapped up in, like, nothing. But yeah, it's it's yeah. a solid episode, a very interesting introduction, but not necessarily like an 11th hour level, like this is incredible as both an introduction and as an episode itself. Yeah, it's, it's an okay premiere. I don't think it's a great premiere. I think it's got great elements to it. Jodie Whittaker being first among those, she's outstanding. She, like as much as any Doctor ever has, just her first, first impression is just top-notch off to the races she does not need any time to warm up to this thing she is just 
outstanding. But yeah, I think it's about as thin a Monster of the Week story as Modern Who has had, at least in recent years. Like, there's no meat on those bones whatsoever. And I think it is, as you say, kind of a messy episode in that sense. It's certainly no 11th Hour or Christmas Invasion or Spearhead from Space or Robot or any of the great Doctor introduction stories. But it gets the character foundation right, and that makes me hopeful. And, you know, I want to see more of these characters. And ultimately, you know, if it were reverse and you had a good story but no interesting characters, that would be even worse. So... Yeah, you know. no, you'd, you'd rather have, like, the solid introduction into something that makes you want to see more of it than, like, the, well, this is a really good story, but I think I'm kind of done feeling. Yes, exactly. So we will talk about that at much greater length later in the episode. But for now, Sean, let's do some stuff. What have you been up to? Um, mostly playing a lot of Dragon Quest. That has been basically my free time has been Dragon Quest Eleven. I did tool around a little bit with Dragon Ball Fighters. um... Over the past two weeks, because two weeks ago, the last bit of DLC for Season 1, which is Android 17 and Cooler, dropped. And so I took a little break from Dragon Quest XI just to be like, I should do something else that I could talk <laughs> about on this podcast. So I most I didn't play that much with them. I mostly just kind of dropped in training mode and messed around. But I do have to say, if you're someone who's looking more at the DLC as like a piecemeal kind of thing, and you don't necessarily want to buy every character, but you might want to buy a couple... I would say that Android 17 and Cooler, aside from Vegito, are the the two best DLC characters. They're really interesting. Android 17 in particular plays a lot to what I like about the game, that he's very agile. He has a lot of interesting moves that can kind of combo into stuff together. If you've played the game and you've played Yamcha at all, Android 17 is kind of like a Yamcha-esque character in that his core special attack is one that can be chained and comboed with different button inputs. So it's not just like a big beam. It's more of like, a, here's like a series of attacks, he, like melee attacks he does, that depending on what inputs you do, it transitions into different kinds of attacks that you can do different things with. And that's really cool. And like, you can do a lot of creative stuff with that. He has a move that I think is like, um, like quarter circle back or forward with the X button on PS4 that just has him jump half like basically to the wall on either side depending if you go forward or back with it that means he's very very mobile and he can just jump around the screen fucking like at really weird angles because generally in dragon ball fighters characters move at very straight directions if you're like dragon rushing or you're jumping straight up and he's has these big like arced jumps he can do that are really interesting and so andrew 17 is cool in that way and then cooler is good because he fills in the like big brawly fighter kind of thing that fighters only has a couple of characters like Nappa and Android 16 and Broly, who's in, on one of the other DLCs. So Cooler is one of those. And I like him more than the other ones because he has a bunch of counter moves, which they don't. So he has a lot of his special attacks are, like, if you... you I think it's even his, like, normal level 3 super is straight up if you can only use it as a counter. But it but he can, like, counter enemies' special, like, beam attacks and stuff like that, which no other character can do. And he has a bunch of crazy, like, really long-range attacks he can do with his tail. So if you're someone that's interested in checking out some of the DLC characters, Android 17 and Cooler are a lot of fun to play with. And so that's 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 my little Dragon Ball Fighters check-in, that I'm still poking away at that game every now and then. Nice. Yes. But other than that, I've just played a lot of Dragon Quest XI. I'm not done with that game. Um, I'm at the point where shit is bad for people. Okay. I think that's that's a very descriptive like like it's very bad for people right now where I'm at. There is a turn in the story 
and we shouldn't say any more than that, but it is a very dramatic turn in the story. Yes, and I'm, I'm in that section of the game now. Which Excellent. I feel like has got to be... I know that there's a lot of post-game stuff, but at least for like the main story, I feel like that's like I'm on the path to the end. I can the, see it. The turn is like halfway through. So, yeah. yeah. Um, I am... I have seen the credits of Dragon Quest XI. I have beaten the final boss. I am not done with the game. Just so you know, I don't. This, this isn't a spoiler, but this game is like, without all the weirdness, near automata levels of the credits are not the end of the fucking game. Like, right. like holy Jesus Christ, do not turn the game off after the credits. It's not over, guys. So I beat the game at about 65 hours. I'm 70, 72 hours in now. And the post-game stuff is really interesting and getting better the more I play it. And I'm fascinated with it, and I'm so happy there's there's more because as I was getting to what is the end of the first section of the game, whatever you want to call it, I was really feeling like, man, I'm not ready for this 60-hour long game to be over. I want to play more of it. I don't want this to be done, and it's not. I I went through a little period of being disappointed with the game because I think the initial ending the initial run to credits felt a little anticlimactic to me and then i saw there was more story i wasn't sure about that story but i stuck with it and where it has taken me now i'm extremely satisfied with and i'm extremely interested in playing more and more of it and it's not just that they take the plot in new directions there are a lot of gameplay wrinkles that get introduced when you beat the game so I'm loving it. It's great. But also know that this game is, is not over when you think it's over. And if you think it's long, by the time you reach the credits, you ain't seen nothing yet because there's plenty, plenty left over. Good. So, yeah. It's it's a great game. We will be saving, I think, longer comments for that when we have both reached a point where we feel like we could do a big spoiler talk. But, I mean, Sean, you're already at a point where you've seen some of my favorite story in the game, and it is it is so incredible. I can't wait to talk about some of the the plot and characters with you because it's a masterful piece of high fantasy. Yeah, no, it's it's a lot of fun, and I I love all the characters. And there's a like there's that section in the game where you are hunting for orbs, which I think is a easy spoiler free way of describing it, where you encounter a bunch of really fun little self-contained stories that that that's like the first one of those is where i think i like really fell in love with the game because like up to that point there was a lot of stuff i enjoyed but then it felt like they kind of upped the ante once you got to that section and i'm i am i'm all in at this point and they're gonna keep upping it it's it's a really it's a no holds barred experience it's so good so play Dragon Quest XI if you haven't yet. Uh, now that it, yeah, it has been, it's October 7th as we're recording this. So it has been over a month that I've been playing this game. And uh, full steam ahead, I'm still on board with it. Although I have been playing one other game this week. And uh, I've been busy with other stuff, so I just have not had a lot of time for video games in the past week. But the other major release this last week, well, the other major release was Assassin's Creed Odyssey. But... I saw all the reviews being like, it's a 500-hour Assassin's Creed game. And I'm like, nope, no thanks. Yeah. I'm okay. I don't need that. I'm sure it's good. I don't need it. So maybe one day, but I don't know when I would have time for a 500-hour Assassin's Creed game. I I still have not yet finished Assassin's Creed Origins. I would go back and finish that game before I'd buy a new one. Yeah. That's maybe, maybe, again, 
if if Dragon Quest or Persona were an annualized franchise, we would not like them as much. Let's just no. put it that way. We would we wouldn't be able to play them. It would not be no. physically possible. Yeah, so I I think Ubisoft's strategy of like let's make Assassin's Creed both annualized and ungodly long so that nobody can possibly play it every year. Interesting strategy. I'll, we'll see how that goes. Yeah. I'm I'm really glad that them like kind of turning a new leaf with Assassin's Creed Origins and making this really amazing game in that one did not prevent Ubisoft from completely fucking Assassin's Creed immediately. I, I do not know why they've decided to make two, like, 100-hour-long games back-to-back within two years. Why they why now we're getting a break and we're not getting a new Assassin's Creed next year? Why couldn't that have been this year and then have Odyssey come next year or two years later? I just... I love that Assassin's Creed continues to be the most weird fucking franchise in video games. Because it looked for a second like Ubisoft figured their shit out. And they it seems like maybe they totally have not. I mean, again, it looks like a really good game in a oh, yeah. vacuum. But we're not in a vacuum. We're in the real world. And, you know, if Rockstar released a Grand Theft Auto game of the size and scale of Grand Theft Auto V every single year, the franchise would be dead in a back lot somewhere in a fucking dumpster, you know? Like, yeah. there would be no husk of a franchise left anymore. I don't really know how Assassin's Creed does it, but they're going to get to that point if they push it like this. Anyway, the game I've been playing is Forza Horizon 4, one of two exclusives on the Xbox One this year, and the one that I bought. So, well, I didn't buy it, actually. My little brother bought it, and I'm playing it because we share an account. So, there you go. There you Stealing go. games. Not stealing, but, you know, gaming the system. So anyway, uh, but Forza Horizon 4, you all know I was a big, big fan of Forza Horizon 3, which was two years ago. This is the, uh, I was going to say the more, like, Playground-esque Forza game, because, but I didn't mean that as a pun. These are made uh-huh. by a company named Playground Games, but it is. They're the big sandbox, open world, like, go have fun racing around a cool part of the world in Forza Horizon 3. It was Australia. In Forza Horizon 4, it is the English countryside. And it's just a big open playground that you can go race and do stunts and have impromptu street races and just do some free driving and find different things out in the world. It's a great series. Forza Horizon 3 was one of my favorite games of 2016. I think it was number 7 or number 6 on my top 10 that year. So I thought it was a a really outstanding game. I have not played enough of Forza Horizon 4 to really know if I love it or not yet. It's definitely very good. It has a very high bar of quality. It looks outstanding. It plays very well. My only kind of hesitation with it so far is that it's very much Forza Horizon 3 on a new map, like down to the most basic things about like the user interface and stuff. Almost nothing has changed. It, it feels almost in some ways more like a DLC for Forza Horizon 3 than it does a full new game. But I also have not seen the whole map yet. I have not seen all of the different seasons that they have in it. I'm in winter right now. It does this kind of cycle for you with a, a series of events in each of the different seasons before it gets into whatever the the next kind of mode of the game is. So it's interesting. Uh, I do like the whole season mechanic they have because they are very substantially different from one another. Summer versus fall versus winter versus spring. Uh, winter, once again, is just the coolest fucking thing in these games that was introduced in the Forza Horizon 3 DLC and it's very very neat all the effects they do with snow and ice and how that affects the racing the cars are a lot of fun I don't find the map as interesting 
at first as I did Australia. I think that's kind of a high bar to clear. Australia is obviously a very like eye-catching part of the world with a lot of different like geographic variants that they could play with, and England is not as much. But I will say, the more I play it, I think the England map sneaks up on you. It's got a lot more maybe subtle charms to it. Um, there are a lot of very interesting things they've done with especially the more close quarters races, not the the big like countryside ones that I think are really well done and really fun to play. Um, I think the gameplay might be even slightly tighter than it was in Forza Horizon 3, just in terms of it feels like the driving just feels extremely intuitive and responsive. Uh, I, I It's challenging, but it's very, very fun and rewarding to play. So it's definitely a good game. If you like this series, you know, I would recommend it. Um, just know that it does not feel, at least to me, like a completely new Forza Horizon game. It feels like, you know, Forza Horizon three on a new map, like I said, and there's nothing wrong with that. Forza Horizon 3 is very good and a durable formula, and you get a lot of new stuff here, but I am curious if, as I play more, I'll find more that makes this feel sort of like its own thing and not just, again, Forza Horizon 3.5 or something. Did you ever play Forza Horizon 2, or did you start with 3? I started with three. They've given away one and two on Xbox Live Games with Gold, so I've, like, tooled around in those a little bit. And there are similarities, but three was definitely a jump, as I understand it, in terms of, like, I feel like they made more of a leap of... of, I mean, it was their first, like, fully next-generation one, I believe. Like, two, if it... Two would have been the year the Xbox One came out, so it would have have had to be cross-platform, I imagine. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was cross-platform. One was definitely 360. Yeah, one is 362, I think, was cross-platform. So, like, three was their first fully next-gen one. I think it had a, a slightly different style to it. I could be wrong on that, but from what I know, like, this feels... It doesn't feel like three was just two on a new map. It felt like three was, you know, a clear evolution, and I don't know if four quite feels like that yet. Yeah, because I, I just feel like a lot of times car, like, racing games have that element of, like... You know, there's only so much you can do at some point. And so, like, every time I've ever gotten a little bit into a racing franchise like Burnout or Need for Speed, it's typically felt like every three or four years you get the, oh, this is the big jump. And then in between, you're like, yeah, this is, like, more of the stuff I like. Yeah, it's still very polished, very well done. It looks outstanding. It's got uh, great radio stations, like... I recognize a lot of the music on the radio stations, and that's when you know a franchise is successful. They can right. pay to have real music on the radio stations. So I like that. It's you know, it's a ton of fun. These are great games, but that's my only reservation so far. And who knows? I've seen little things that kind of hint at interesting new th- dynamics going on in the game, and certainly the seasonal aspect of it is a huge new thing they've added to it, and I'm interested to get more in-depth with that. But, yeah, that's uh, I was I was happy to have a reason to get my Xbox out of my cellar and plug it back into my TV again. Well, you should have just brought a TV to the cellar and made it your, like, Xbox dungeon. Yes, I could have done that. All right. Uh, What else have we got for stuff? Uh, I wanted to quickly mention a movie that came out this week that I absolutely love. It's the new filmed version of A Star is Born by Bradley Cooper, Starring Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga, obviously it's been the big critical like discussion in films for the last couple months because it's been doing the festival circuit and everybody uh, loves it and now it is out in theaters in wide release. It made $42 million opening weekend, which if if that goes on to like win major Oscars, that's pretty rare for a like 
Oscar powerhouse these days to like actually make serious money at the box office, especially on an opening weekend thing. So uh, certainly when I saw it, you know, opening weekend here in Iowa City, it was absolutely packed and everybody was full body sobbing at the end of the movie because it's that's what it does to you. It's a outstanding, outstanding film. I love it to death. I think it has amazing performances, particularly by Bradley Cooper, who I just did not know had this in him. I like him as an actor, but this is a level of depth that I just, again, I did not know was there. Lady Gaga, it is not surprising that she is talented. She's like, every year or two, she's like, I'm going to just show you guys five more things I can do because I'm a very talented person. And now she's added acting to that, and she's great at it, and also a phenomenal singer. The music in the movie is I think unusually good for a movie about music. Like usually you get, you know, music in a movie about musicians that is like good. It, it passes the smell test. It's like, this is real music, but it's not necessarily like you would go out and buy it. I think the music in this movie is completely believable as musicians who would become rich and famous playing their music. And that is its own little magic trick. It's a great soundtrack. And it is just, it's a fantastic film overall. I wrote an entire review that's up on the website, jonathanlack.com. I don't find the time to write full movie reviews much these days, so that should tell you how much I was moved by this film. So I'd implore you to go read that if you are interested, and then go see the movie because it's very good, and it's not Venom. And the more people don't go see Venom, the happier I will be because... I had been staking a claim for months that Venom was going to, like, fucking bankrupt Sony because I saw the trailers and it looked like the kind of movie that bankrupts studios. And it made $80 million this weekend. And I just, I don't know anymore. I I don't know. I kind of feel like never watching movies again after that. I mean, how much money did fucking Suicide Squad make, Jonathan? More than that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, more so, than that. You know, but I could not... also I could also look at Suicide Squad and be like, I know who's going to go see that movie. I'm still not sure who showed up to see Venom. Probably the same people as Suicide Squad. I think you but also I don't know. you might underestimate it a little bit just how popular Venom is as a character. Like he is, yeah. like he hasn't been in the spotlight much recently. But if you grew up in the late '80s and the '90s, like Venom was fucking everywhere. So I can okay. see there being like a big fan contingent, and then. People who just, you know, go see whatever. Yeah. Those people went and saw it, you know? I feel sorry for them. Yeah. It it looks so bad. Yeah. Anyway. All right. We will not be talking about Venom on this podcast. No. I don't give a yeah. shit. No. Like, I didn't go see Suicide Squad. I'm sure as sure shit not going to go see Venom. All right. So let's see. Let's go ahead and move on to the news, Sean. Let's begin with some video game news. Uh, There has been further fallout on the closure of Telltale Games. We talked about this on the last episode, and over the last two weeks, obviously, there have been more evolutions in this. To recap, Telltale Games shut down very suddenly, laid off the vast majority of its staff. Uh, After all of that happened, the company put out a press release claiming they were working with partners to try to find a way to finish Walking Dead, the final season, which was midway through its release when the closure happened. Uh, Episode 2 had gone out to reviewers, but then they pulled season passes from digital storefronts. And then uh, on Saturday, so uh, Saturday, October 6th, we learned that Skybound Games, a studio that is a subsidiary of of the company that publishes the Walking Dead comic books, will finish the Walking Dead final season employing some members of the Telltale staff. There are no other details on that, but we had heard from a lot of reporting over the last two weeks that the final season 
Uh, episode three was essentially done. It just needed some quality assurance testing and some polish. And episode four was very far along in development. So it doesn't seem like it's that big a boulder to finish pushing up the hill. But it is interesting that this is getting finished. Uh, that does open up a whole other can of worms about how the former employees of Telltale, who were let go without any form of severance or back pay for overtime, are going to be uh, treated uh, given this is happening and T- Telltale will still be selling new games based on their work. So there are a lot of questions remaining, but that's the situation as it stands now. Yeah, no, it's fucking... You thought it was weird that when the way that Telltale just sort of like closed out of nowhere in the middle of them releasing that game, which there's also been a bunch of reporting that has indicated ex- like the stuff that happened, which was they had a couple of backers. I think AT&T was one of them that like they were working with um, and expecting to get a lot of money from. And then the, those companies backed out and they were like, oh, well, we've been running our company in a very like financially and like fiscally irresponsible and self-destructive way. That means that if we don't get this funding, we literally can't run our company anymore. And so that's why they had to lay off like 90% of their staff. And yeah, this is just, it feels really scummy to do this thing of like, we're going to lay off all the people that were making this game. Um, and then we're going to bring a couple of them back on through like this weird third party kind of company that's that's tangentially related to the Walking Dead stuff, and then finish the game that way. And I am highly skeptical, or just flat out do not believe and do not think that the the other people that worked on that game that are now no longer employed by Telltale will receive anything um, if this if these final two episodes are finished in some capacity and released. I think it's a really bizarre situation that would have me, even if I was a big Telltale person and and loved all those Walking Dead games, I would have, like, severe moral issues with the idea of buying these last two episodes and finishing off this season that way because it's fucking gross and weird. Yeah, it's it's just a a terrible situation all around. Telltale was clearly a... Uh, house of cards with no real foundation as a business and the the people who ran that company should just i don't know feel a lot of shame because there are a lot of good people out of work who are kind of getting not kind of they are very much being exploited in all sorts of directions out of this and all for a stupid point and click zombie game i don't get it but that's the situation Because also, like, part of what got them in the situation was that, like, each of their subsequent games sold less and less and less and less. So it's like The Walking Dead, the final season, was not selling much at all, which is one of the other reasons why they had to close us down, is they lost that funding. And their current project, which was, like, their primary source of revenue, was getting basically nothing. And so it is a weird move from that perspective of who's even going to buy this. Like, yeah. I, I get that they're already, like, probably the majority of people that bought those first two episodes probably bought them through the season pass. And so they're shit out of luck if if this doesn't come out. But it is, like, a weird idea of where is the money going to come from? Like, what? who's getting – how are they going to pay the people for this? Because I don't think a lot of people are going to buy these next two episodes. 
There's a whole larger conversation that's been happening in the video game industry and in the video game press that we have not weighed in on a ton, uh, which is the issue of video game workers unionizing. And I mm-hmm. think that would be an interesting discussion to have at some point. I think video game workers absolutely should unionize. Unions are a good thing. I'm I'm part of a union now for the first time in my life as a as a employee of the University of Iowa, and that's great. I get a lot of benefits out of it because, you know, unions are a good thing. And I do think, if nothing else, this telltale situation is going to put a lot of pressure on the industry to really start, or not the industry, but the people within the industry, to really start taking that idea seriously. It's not going to be an easy hill to climb, but it is extremely necessary. You know, unions have been an entrenched part of the film industry for a long time, and it's a really good thing. It's part of what allows for a robust, sustainable film industry. And the video game industry not having an equivalent to that is a problem, and it's a problem that is only going to get worse and worse and worse the longer nothing is done about it. So I think the Telltale situation is a harbinger of things to come. Yeah, like that's a lot of that, the union stuff, a lot of that cropped up. It is really interesting to think about the the SAG-AFTRA strike that happened a couple of years ago, and part of, like, around um, the Life is Strange games, which are, like, Telltale adjacent, were, like, kind of centered in that because all the main voice talent on Life is Strange were mostly SAG-AFTRA people, and so they left um, and were not be able to be on the prequel game they made before the storm. But there are all those arguments that started happening where there were, like, video game developers that were getting angry that SAG-AFTRA were trying to get stuff for their voice actors and for the people that they represented as the union um, and get them, like, I forget, because like, it isn't even, like, really royalties, but it's just, like, get them, like, basic protections as workers in the that industry, and there are a lot of people that working in game development that were like, well, that's bullshit, we don't get any of that stuff, why should they? And it was this constant, like, head-smacking thing of, like, get a fucking union and maybe you can. And it's like, you know, the, unions are so vital, um, especially in an industry like that, and, and, and game developers have been so routinely exploited with things like crunch and unpaid overtime for so long or closures like this, like with Telltale, that it is so necessary at this point for, you know, a lot of like the major parties to come together and figure out and get their shit together and figure out how to do that because it has been a, it has been boiling under the surface for years, if not decades, because like, you know, crunch has been such an entrenched issue in video games for as long as I've known about video games. Like one of my earliest no, things I ever learned about game development was all about like the development of Halo One and Two, and like the classic like infamous stories about crunch that Bungie had around those games. And so I think it's it's been a long time coming for people to really get together and unionize and figure that that shit out because it's been too long and too much. Look, video games are the highest grossing segment of the entertainment industry in the United States of America. They bring in more money than movies. They bring in more money than television. They bring in more money than music. There should be protections for workers. There should be proper payment for workers. The capital exists for that to happen. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I I think the telltale thing just to me feels like if there was ever any doubt about that being the right path forward, I I would hope that is expunged because of this situation. Because it it would not have saved telltale and it would not have saved those employees, but it would have given them a lot of protections and possible cushions along the way. And it might have made the company think more responsibly because they would have been answerable to someone. Exactly. So, yeah. 
All right, uh, let's move on over to Sony, who made two interesting announcements this week. Uh, one is that they announced that they are not holding the PlayStation Experience event this year. This is right, the yeah. fall uh, or winter event that they hold in, I think, New York every year. It's kind of like their other side of like E3. This is where they show other stuff. Um, Sean Layden just came out and said they don't have enough to announce beyond what we've seen, so it's just not happening. Uh, and the same week, Sony also announced... Crossplay is coming to the PlayStation 4, but starting only with Fortnite, there is a beta currently available on PS4 Now for a crossplay version of Fortnite with other platforms. Sony says they are open to doing this on other games, but in subsequent news pieces, other developers could not confirm these plans, and some frankly seemed surprised that it had happened. It did not seem like this was necessarily fully disseminated to their partners. Sean Layden, again the head of, of PlayStation, later confirmed that they want to do this with other video games, but stressed over and over again in interviews that it would take a lot of time and effort. So they are definitely hedging on this, but they have fixed the Fortnite situation uh, with PS4 accounts on Nintendo Switch, Xbox, PC, iOS, and those sorts of things. And there is an effort to bring crossplay to at least that game. We'll see if it comes to fruition with other games as well. But I was surprised by this. I was definitely in the camp that Sony was taking the we're going to be quiet until people forget about this strategy. And that strategy was working. Everyone had stopped talking about it. And just as everyone had stopped talking about it, they did make this announcement. So kudos i guess uh better late than never yeah like i wasn't i was kind of surprised that it just sort of dropped without any rumor that it was about to happen because now we're starting to get a bunch of rumors that the like the long-awaited playstation network name change stuff seems like it's in the pipeline there have been a lot of like you know not totally confirmed but it seems like well-researched articles uh interviewing different anonymous developers saying that like they're working on that and it might be closer than you think there was none of that for this, and it was just, like, dropped in the middle of nowhere. But I had thought that, you know, Fortnite is big enough. Fortnite is big enough yeah. to be like, eh, fuck it, we'll, we'll move for Fortnite. I, it'll be interesting to see, like, there because there's definitely this, possi this weird possibility that I think you were hinting at of them, like, kind of hedging in this weird way of, like, we'll do it for Fortnite, but for other stuff... Hmm. Like it was like a little bit of a like they didn't definitely didn't say that explicitly, but it did feel weird that like at least Rocket League wasn't there because it feels like Rocket League yeah. and Fortnite were the two big crossplay games. I know there are a couple of others, but I mean, like fucking Rocket League is crossplayable on PS4 with PC. It's just not with Xbox One yet. So that's I'm curious and to Nintendo see Nintendo Switch. Yeah, and yeah, well, but PS4 can't go with Nintendo Switch, but PS4 can right. play with PC is what I was saying. Um, yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, so it, I'm. I, I think that probably that's not going to be some like weird conspiracy thing that happens. But there's it's. It felt weird that it was just Fortnite, though they did say specifically I, it's a beta. I don't think it's a conspiracy, but look, Sean Layden's interviews were the words of someone dread kicking and screaming to do this. Like this was not an enthusiastic. Like we've always wanted to do this, and finally we've put in the effort, and we've done great work getting this. It's like. It's really hard, you guys. It's so hard to do crossplay. It just takes so much work. And they're like, and I don't know if we're going to be able to. I don't know. This little mom and pop company here at Sony, I don't know if we're going to be able to do this with other games. It's really tough, you guys. Like, I thought his comments were frankly kind of weird. It definitely felt like trying to lay the groundwork for we're going to get this with Fortnite because Fortnite has 80 million monthly players and we're not going to do this with anything else. Like, 
because I'm, you know, I'm sure work does go into it and creating an infrastructure for crossplay. I don't think it's, again, proportional to the size of the company that is Sony, the amount of work Sean Layden kept, like, laying out in that interview. In part because we know, I I forget what game it was, I think it was Rocket League when it, or no, it wasn't Rocket League, but there was a game, like, a year or two ago that came out and just was doing crossplay on PS4 and Xbox. That's and Fortnite. Fortnite that's did Fortnite. that. Like, that was it, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So never mind, was, like... It was like, Fortnite before people knew what Fortnite was. Right. So, like... Again, they're doing the beta, and they're talking about all the work it takes, and, like, it's like, just, you're letting people use the internet together, guys. It's it's not that crazy. This thing exists. It's, if if Microsoft and, if fucking Nintendo can do it, and, and Nintendo still only knows what some parts of the internet are, you guys can figure it the fuck out. And I don't think they want to figure it out, and I think that's still fairly clear from what they've said. Well, I think it's not an issue of figuring it out. Like, it's more an issue, I think, of, like, an internal policy battle at Sony is what it's clearly always been, is that there are obviously factions in Sony that do not want this to happen. There are factions in Sony that do want this to happen, and the factions that have not wanted it to happen are the ones that have been winning so far. Um, Because because what this stuff is, is is way more of a pressure on the game developers than on, like, the hardware side for Sony. Because it's not, clearly not impossible or not, like extraordinarily difficult to get those networks to communicate with each other in a very basic way. The thing that video game developers need to do, and it's the thing that I, I constantly see people forgetting all the time when this crossplay shit comes up, is that each individual game needs to make itself a platform for crossplay to make any sense. So it's like for Fortnite it makes sense because Fortnite has like their epic Fortnite friends lists and party chat systems and all that kind of stuff built in from the epic side that then you are connecting to with whatever your device is. But there is no world and there will never be a world in which your PlayStation Network friends list communicates with your Xbox Live friends list or somebody else's Xbox Live friends list or a PSN uh, party system communicates with a Nintendo Switch party system. That will never happen. Like that, that's crazy. So it's like the games have to make the platform and make their own online platform for that to make sense and be worth anything more than just random players being able to connect with each other. And so I think that's where if you're if people are concerned about like the amount of work being put in, that's where the concern lies. The amount of work is not a pressure for Sony at all. No. But but I guess that's my point is that those games exist and it's not just Fortnite. Like there's not a billion of them, but you know, Rocket League has these built-in functions as well because that's something that like again, they were one of the like first big games in the industry to be like we like crossplay, we want people to play together. It's there in the code of the game. There are enough of these games, you know, three or four or five, that if Sony wanted to act like the market leader they are and really put a flag in the ground and be like, we're here at the party too, they could have activated this all at once and been working with partners over the last few months and said, you know, adapt the system you already have to now encompass, you know, PlayStation as well. And they didn't do that. And I think... You know, I think if you read between the lines, yes, it's obvious that the very hard work they're talking about is getting the internal factions at Sony to talk to each other. And I think the detente they've reached at this point is we're going to allow it for Fortnite and we're going to keep arguing with it, you know, amongst ourselves about other video games. Yeah, I think the big thing that will be like the telling point is when the next big game comes around that wants to do crossplay that has not been released yet and is clearly like in the middle of development while these this policy is coming into place. If if the next big crossplay game comes out and there's no Sony side of it, that will be the telling point. If like yes. in the future for the future stuff to come, if this policy is not working for them, that will be where where it will feel like okay, Sony, you're really just concerned about Fortnite. <laughs> 
Yeah. So we shall see. What do you think about them not doing PlayStation experience? Um, it makes sense. It was something I was curious about because I think what happened this year was Paris Games Week became their their PlayStation experience. If you don't remember, Paris Games Week is where they like they freaking unveiled Ghost of Tsushima there. Um, and and there's I don't think it's never been like fully confirmed with like an in depth report, but like every like different like video game reporter I follow has all basically insinuated that what has happened is a lot of the people at the European arms of Sony were getting really frustrated that they had no nowhere to show their games um, because there's TGS for Japan and there's E3 for America. And then there was also PSX, which is also America focused and they wanted to show that was for them. And so they got a lot of stuff showed at Paris games week. And I okay. think that's also probably probably one of the reasons why there was no big unveiling of anything at E3 this year. Instead, we got four big demos, which it was a good E3 presentation, but it was four demos of four games that we already knew about. So their their explanation of we don't have a PSX because there is no huge announcement for us. There's not even like a small big announcement. That makes sense to me. Like I'm kind of bummed about it because I like the PSX thing and there were always a couple of little small surprises even when there typically had not been big Sony specific stuff the last couple of years. But it does not surprise me that we're not getting it this year. Yeah, I think that's a good analysis. No more to say about that. Uh, Google Yeti, which is the long-rumored Google gaming platform thing, uh, was unveiled this week as Project Stream, a beta program to stream video games using Google Chrome, the web browser. Uh, they are starting this with Assassin's Creed Odyssey. There have been invites that have gone out to some people. I put my name up for that, but I haven't gotten anything back. So uh, hopefully I'll get to play Assassin's Creed Odyssey in Google Chrome and tell you what that's like. But not yet. Uh, and Assassin's Creed Odyssey, interestingly, is also streaming on the Nintendo Switch in Japan. This is the second streamable third-party game on the Switch in Japan, the other being Resident Evil 7. They've yeah. come out as basically cloud games on the Switch in Japan. It's a little experiment they're running uh, out east. But, um, yeah, so this is interesting. Google is trying to go all in. On, well, not all in, but they're trying to dip their waters, uh, toe into the water at least, on streaming video games. They're doing it with a very big third-party video game in Assassin's Creed Odyssey. Clearly, Ubisoft is fine with that game being streamed because they're also doing the Nintendo Switch thing. I I think it's it's a curious thing to me because streaming is still something that just is not going to take off and literally cannot take off with the internet infrastructure as it exists in the United States at this moment. And I also think in the political climate we have in the, you know, very monopolistic uh culture we have, especially among, you know, tech companies and IP providers in the United States, I'm not sure how the internet could ever get to the level where streaming would be a widespread thing in the United States for video games. Uh, I think it would take, frankly, something akin to like a government infrastructure program to highways, but for internet to like get us to that speed here. Um, so I, 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 I think it's, a, I still think it's a bit of a weird thing to be trying to like figure out the future of, because I just don't think the future is like a, a potential for that anytime soon. But who knows? Uh, I haven't really heard how this thing has been running. It only launched a couple days ago. It was Friday when they started uh, allowing this, and I haven't heard anything about it. But it is interesting that Google thinks this is something worth investing in. Yeah, I mean, it's 
you know, that was like the big story at E3 this year was like Microsoft in particular coming out and being like, yeah, we're, you know, streaming eventually is something probably we'll maybe do. And EA had a lot of shit about that. I think Eve Yuma had like a, they didn't say on it anything about it on their stage, but they kind of talked about it in an interview, um, I think on The Verge around E3. And so, yeah, it's clearly something they're all thinking about. Obviously, Sony has had their PS Now thing for like seven fucking years or something. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I think, it makes sense to me that all these companies are playing around with it. I think you and I are both well on record of the, hey, fucking guys, most places in America cannot fucking handle this at all. No. Um, but it is, I do like the weird shit, though, of Japan just being like, yeah, we've just got these weird little cloud versions of these games that are coming out in Japan. Which makes sense that I imagine if you're in any of like the major metropolitan areas of Japan, like Tokyo, which is obviously the majority of the population there... I, I I suspect those run pretty well. Like, I don't know. I haven't read anything specifically. Um, but I do think it's interesting that that is continuing because it was really, it was really, really weird when Resident Evil 7 was the only game that did that. Now that there's at least another game, it's like, it makes sense to me that you're doing this. It's not just this, this bizarre, like, one game. And then it's been, like, a year since that. So it took them a while to get back around to trying another one of these. But it's an interesting strategy for the Switch, um, and and it's telling that that has not gone to any other version. Those both those games are only available in Japan. Um, yeah, I can Switch. I can totally see why that would work in Japan, just given the the very handheld centric culture in Japan, the long commutes on trains, trains that do have publicly available Wi Fi and things like that, like. This could work. They also, like, you know, Nintendo is obviously a, a huge thing in Japan. Uh, I don't know the exact number of, like, Switches versus PS... The PS4 is obviously sold well in Japan as well. But yeah. there is, like, this whole other player base that is very, you know, big in Japan that you would not be reaching if you only sold Assassin's Creed Odyssey on the PS4. So I think for eking out a couple extra bucks by selling it as a streamable thing on Switch, that makes sense as a business move. But yes, it is, again, very telling that... You just uh, you couldn't get away with that over here because there's just mm-hmm. way too much geographical variance. I mean, I live in a fucking college town, you know, where you would think like there would be a really big demand for good Wi-Fi, and I have good Wi-Fi, I have decent Wi-Fi. Uh, it's actually better than I had in some places in Colorado, but it's not enough that I could you know actively use something like PlayStation Now. Yeah. So who knows? I mean, PlayStation Now even I don't know if you saw this announced that they will now allow you to just download games from PlayStation Now if they're for the PS4 or PS2. Yeah. Just fully recognizing that, like, right, no one's playing these if you have to stream them, <laughs> you know? It's like this could add some benefit to it. it. Clearly, it's like maybe dipping their toes into the water of competing with the Xbox Games Pass um, very quietly. But, you know, yeah, I, I, I don't know if streaming is the future given the way the infrastructure works. In with internet, especially in the United States, but you know, people are always going to be interested in it, especially if they live in cities with very good internet. Yeah, I think it's like the streaming is streaming is definitely the future if we have a future at all, and that future is very far off. Is is my feeling on it? I think we it will be there eventually if if humanity is ever there eventually. I gotcha. All right, let's move on. Last piece of video game news. Widespread reports this week, I believe they started in the Wall Street Journal, that Nintendo mm-hmm. is developing a new Nintendo Switch hardware revision for 2019 to launch in the summer or the fall. This would fall in line with past updates to handheld Nintendo systems, such as the GBA SP, which launched a little under two years after the Game Boy Advance, or the Nintendo DS Lite, again a little under two years, or the 3DS XL, which launched... 
within a year of the original Nintendo 3DS. So this would be completely in line with that. Actually, it would be two-plus years because uh, Nintendo Switch launched in March of 2017. This would be fall of 2019. So it would be like two and a half years. So I think this announcement seemed like a little soon to everyone, and it was a little jarring. And then if you've been like a long-time Nintendo fan, you're like... Eh, this actually, this is kind of what they do, um, especially with handheld devices. The Nintendo Switch, of course, is not a handheld-only device, and I think that raises a bunch of questions for me. Like, would the dock get redesigned? Do the Joy-Cons get redesigned? Because if the system itself is thinner than the current Joy-Cons would not latch on the way they do now, would those new Joy-Cons somehow be backwards compatible with the original Nintendo Switch hardware. I think there's like a whole can of worms out of this. For all we know, it might just be the ba- basically the same design with a slightly like brighter screen or something. Mm-hmm. Um, my feeling is like, hey, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Nintendo gonna Nintendo. And, you know, the, the mid-generation hardware revisions are now something everyone is doing, not just Nintendo. So who knows? Yeah, one of the things it, it is making me wonder about is what is Nintendo's projected lifespan for the Nintendo Switch because like that's one of the things that like if you're looking at this as a handheld device it makes a lot of sense if you're looking at it as a console like is it a mid-generation like are they looking at this as a four to five year device or because you know we had like the PS4 Pro Xbox One X that felt those felt like mid-generation and that was like three to four years in the middle for like a six to eight year overall lifespan I'm curious to see like what that means for this again like also these reports are so like vague in the sense of all we know for sure, if you're, like, accepting them, is there is going to be some sort of update. There's no specifics about, like, what the updates would be. There's just, like, some vague speculation about, ah, the screen will probably be better. I don't know. Yeah, I – my guess, honestly, like, gut feeling is that I don't think Nintendo wants to mess with a good thing right now. Like, part of this report was saying, like, this is in response to the Nintendo Switch sales slowing down. And – Yes, they've slowed down in comparison to, you know, the the rocket ship going off at the beginning of the right. launch, but, like, they're not slow by any means. Like, the Nintendo Switch is the highest-selling console in the world month after month after month in the year 2018, even with a slightly slower 2018 than, than they had uh, 2017. They're, you know, barely a year into this thing, and they've already got 20 million units out in the wild. Like, it is... Very successful. I think if they do some kind of update, it will be a minor sort of revision. I do not think it will be uh, a, a, a major, you know, switch. This is not going to be like the new Nintendo 3DS where they, like, basically did the PS4 Pro thing and beefed it up. I don't think they're going to change the internals. I don't think they're going to mess with what kind of games you can play on one system versus the other. I think probably the best comparison might be something like the DS Lite, where they're going to do a very nice refinement of what's already there. And even then, I'm not sure, because the Nintendo Switch, I think, is by far the most polished handheld device that they've done as a as a first edition. Usually, like, there are very obvious flaws that need correcting, like the original Game Boy Advance had no backlight, the original Nintendo DS had a very poor backlight and was big and bulky and weird, the original Nintendo 3DS didn't sell well, that was one of the big <laughs> yeah. things that they had to correct with the 3DS XL, and then it also had some other issues. The Nintendo Switch is a great little piece of hardware, um, and it's not little, it's bigger than the other ones, but, you know, it is perfectly usable, it's very nice. I I wonder if, like, if anything, they might go in a direction people aren't thinking about, and what if they make, like, a more portable-focused Nintendo yeah. Switch? That could be a market I could see them doing. Like, what if this is, like, the Nintendo Switch Micro? 
to to bring back another Game Boy hardware revision. Uh, I think there's a lot of possibilities. I think it's going to be a much more conservative update than all of the different clickbait articles with like 10 things to add to the Nintendo Switch are predicting. I, I would not expect this to be a huge deal, if it happens next year at all, because this is early and plans could change. Yeah, and I think there's also a chance that this is like a hardware revision in the way that there are always little tiny incremental hardware revisions that the user never really sees manifested in any way, if it isn't like very minor things, but it's mostly like, oh, we refined like the the process of manufacturing like the GPU for the system, or like we're using slightly different materials for the fans that are more cost effective. And like those sorts of things happen every couple of years, whether like they market it or not, because, you know, it's just the process of manufacturing techniques changing and like the availability of resources changing that causes them to revise the material a couple of times. And so like, there's a chance that this is more in line with that. And it's like a little bit more upfront with about it than, than anything else, which is kind of what I'm expecting. Like with you, I'm not expecting some like, and it's the fucking Nintendo switch 1080p mega OLED screen, or they specifically said it wouldn't be OLED, but you know, it's not going to be like a, and it has three joy cons, two on each side and one on the back. You know, it's not going to be that. <laughs> no. All right. So let's go ahead and move on to some movie news. Let's do a couple of movie trailers. Sean, we got the trailer for Dark Phoenix, mm-hmm. which is not called X-Men Dark Phoenix anymore. It's just Dark Phoenix because this is the edgy X-Men movie, Sean. So Dark Phoenix, written by the exact same person who wrote X-Men The Last Stand, Simon Kinberg. <laughs> they don't want you to know that. They want you to forget that. This is this exact same creative team. This is the same fucking people. It's just not Brett Ratner. It's all Simon Kinberg. So who the hell knows? Um, we got a trailer for Dark Phoenix. Like three days after that trailer came out, with the February release date listed on the fucking ad, they shifted the release date for, I think, the third or fourth time to June. So they cannot decide when they want to release this fucking movie. But what did you think about the first glimpse of footage from Dark Phoenix? I thought... Holy shit, do I not give a damn about these X-Men movies anymore. Like, I just felt so empty inside. And there was stuff about it that, like, theoretically, I was like, this this part might be good. Like, this might be okay. And, this, like, and from, like, a very distant perspective. But it was this feeling of, I just feel so completely disconnected from these movies at this point that, like... You have to keep on reminding me that A, this movie exists, and that B, Jean Grey has, this new version of Jean Grey has already been in an X-Men movie. Because I keep on fucking forgetting that she was in X-Men Apocalypse. Because that movie did nothing to build up those characters or make them memorable. Like, there was such an afterthought in that film that when, you know, Cyclops is in this, I'm like, oh, right, there's a new Cyclops. I forgot. I saw a whole fucking movie with this dude in it, and it's already exited my brain. Yeah, I, I'm i not sure what the strategy here is. I think there's also kind of a dead man walking thing going on here. Because we all know Fox has been purchased by yeah. Disney or is in the process of that. I think we all know logically there's no way Disney is going to keep this version of the X-Men series going. I think Deadpool will get to continue in some form because Deadpool is very successful. I think the, you know, limping husk of the X-Men, you know, main canon series that has had ups and downs and is just a continuity roller coaster that nobody has any idea about. Like, that is not the kind of thing I think Disney or Marvel has any fucking interest in. So 
I think we all know that this is probably the last of the Fox-style X-Men movies. It is probably the last time any of these people are going to play these characters. And X-Men is probably going to go into hibernation for a number of years until Kevin Feige can figure out how to integrate it into the MCU. So it's just... It, it's it's a weird thing to be looking at. It You're so right about the apocalypse thing. Because, like, this movie's existence relies on you having some affection for these versions of the characters who were basically glorified cameos in a movie that not many people saw because Apocalypse was a bomb at the box office and the people who did see it didn't really like it and the people who did see it and kind of liked it like me cannot remember what happened in the movie. You know, like I was reading about Apocalypse the other day on Wikipedia and I remembered there was that whole fucking 30 minute segment where Magneto was living with a new family in Poland and then they all got shot and then he went to Auschwitz and destroyed the entire thing. And I'm like, I forgot that was, how did I forget that that was in an X-Men movie? I completely forgot they got Michael Fassbender to do that whole thing. Mm -hmm. So I don't get it. I'm also, I, I want to know who at Fox is still trying to keep up the thing where they go to another decade with every X-Men movie. Because the whole thing was like, X-Men First Class was set in the 60s, which made sense. They were doing like a very stylistic thing with it. They were doing it kind of like James Bond pastiche. We're going to go back to the 60s. Also, that movie was like overtly a prequel to the original Brian Singer films. Then they did Days of Future Past and jumped ahead 10 years. And that was kind of weird because no one looked 10 years older, but whatever. It was the first one, you know, first sequel. Then they did Apocalypse, and now they're in the 80s, and everyone is supposed to be 20 years older. And we're all like, this makes no goddamn sense. And now it's the 90s. 40 fucking years are supposed to have passed, or 30, I guess. And it's just fucking bizarre. Like, I don't, like, it's, the continuity thing is not the worst thing in the world, until you constantly draw attention to it and, like, you know, invite us to think, like, right, James McAvoy is supposed to look like Patrick Stewart within the decade of this film's existence. Like, none of this makes any sense. I don't really know what role, like, Magneto or Mystique or any of these characters are playing in this thing anymore. And I also don't understand how you can tell the Dark Phoenix story with a Jean Grey we barely know. Yeah, that's that's a really important one is the whole sheer concept of the Dark Phoenix story is that you have to care about Jean Grey. And actually, no, first you have to know who Jean Grey is. Like that's that's like the core baseline to do the story where, you know, the character you know and love comes back and is but is all like evil and sexy and weird and crazy. First, you have to know her. Like, we don't even know this version of this character yet. Like, let alone love her or care about her. So you have already fucked that up. The other thing we need to address, I can't believe that Jennifer Lawrence is still in this. I can't believe it either. I But I can totally believe that now Mystique's makeup is totally CGI. They, it's her, when she's black, or when she's blue, it's CGI'd. Yeah, is I, is she blue in the trailer at all? I think there's like one shot where she's blue and you can tell that it's like digitally digitally made up. Yeah, because there's no way she would have agreed to do this without Yeah, it's it's so weird. She was already just beyond being checked out in X-Men Apocalypse. I've never seen a movie star be that checked out in a movie. And I don't know. It makes me worry. Like, does Jennifer Lawrence have a problem paying her taxes or something? Like, why does she need to be in this? Like, if Jennifer Lawrence were one of those, like, art house actors who never does a big movie, 
Like like Michael Fassbender does his own thing and once in a while comes and does X-Men to get his big payday, right? It makes mm-hmm. sense why Michael Fassbender does this. Jennifer Lawrence did The Hunger Games. Like, Jennifer Lawrence is a huge star. She could do whatever she wants. How are they still getting her to do these X-Men movies? It makes no goddamn sense. It feels like at this point Jennifer Lawrence is like playing a game that none of us are in on, which is how <laughs> completely checked out and like just not give a shit can you be in a movie and be Jennifer Lawrence and still let you be in the movie. Like how little of a shit can she give and just clearly hate being there and they still won't throw her out and recast it. It feels like she's like playing chicken with the producers at this point. Yeah, it's weird. It's it's very strange, especially because – and I'm not saying any of this to criticize Jennifer Lawrence as a person or an actor. I like no. Jennifer Lawrence a lot. But, like, Jennifer Lawrence's presence has not made these movies more successful. Like, none of the modern X-Men movies have been big hits. Days of Future Past was a, like, mid-size hit. First Class was eh. And Apocalypse was a bomb. So, like, if your theory is that we need Jennifer Lawrence in here so the kids will come see the movie, like, one, that's not how movies are sold anymore. That has not been how movies have been sold for decades at this point. Like, the movie star model of movie, like, of big blockbusters and stuff just is not how it happens. So I don't really understand the, like, they could have saved the couple of million dollars, let Jennifer Lawrence go free and do things she likes to do. And and not had to spend those couple million dollars. I don't get it. But, you know, whatever. I'm not a big movie executive. So that's Dark Phoenix. Fox is still meddling with their entire X-Men lineup in the weirdest fucking ways. Because, as I said, Dark Phoenix got its release date shifted for the third or fourth time. Uh, the New Mutants movie, which was supposed to come out in April of this year and at current is supposed to come out August of 2020, is probably going to get delayed again because... This whole delay was so they could reshoot a big part of the movie. Um, But we learned this week that those reshoots have actually not started. They were supposed to be, like, done at this point, and there has been no momentum. So the movie and the director and everybody is just kind of sitting there, and I think the whole movie's in a holding pattern. It's a weird situation because the story with New Mutants is not that the movie is bad and people at the studio hate it. It's that Josh Boone, the director, wanted to make a very hardcore horror version of the movie – They wanted him to tone it down. He made their toned-down version. It tested well, but people thought it should have more horror in it. So they thought, okay, Josh Boone, we're going to let you go back and make the movie the way you wanted to make it. That's the story that's been out there. But now they're not even doing anything on it, and it's been two years since they shot the movie. The entire cast is teenagers, so they're going to have a really fun time doing that in reshoots. So I don't know what's happening there. I think there's a good chance it, it does not come out theatrically. And then Deadpool 2 is getting re-released this December right. into theaters as a PG-13 cut uh, with new material of Deadpool reading to Fred Savage in bed. An adult Fred Savage as an homage to the film The Princess Bride. That one baffles me because, one... If you were a teenager and wanted to see Deadpool 2, you snuck into Deadpool 2 and you saw the fucking movie. And two, who wants to see a PG-13 Deadpool? Nobody. Like, I would only be interested in seeing it out of this, like, weird sense of curiosity of what the fuck that even means. Like, what does that look like? Do they 
I, like bleep it out or do they like I hope what happens and this would maybe make the movie worth watching is if instead of like bleeping out or whatever all the the uh, curse words and stuff because they say fuck a lot in that movie uh if they do the you know like cable tv die hard version yes and just you know have Ryan Reynolds have a fucking field day with it and just come up with all that I, shit that could this- be kind of funny the thing is, it's it's such a weird idea. I'm actually interested in it for the exact reason you say. Like, you know, if Ryan Reynolds and and the people who made the movie are involved in this, I think there's a good chance that it actually will be a very funny, like, bonus version of the movie because you could do the meta, like, self aware Deadpool take on this and have a lot of fun with it. But it is, it's it's just a strange impulse, I guess, to say like we're going to do a PG thirteen version of this. The one theory I've seen is that Deadpool two technically did not make as much money as Deadpool 1. It's very close, but it's just under the first film's gross, and that is, I guess, a little embarrassing to Fox to have that on the ledger of, like, uh, we we released this at the wrong time. Maybe we shouldn't have put this out the week after Avengers Infinity War. This should have made more money. And if they can get it into theaters for a week or two and have it come in and get the gross up a little bit, like, I guess that's just on statements is a better thing to have. So maybe that's why they're doing it. I don't know. But, uh, you know, it could actually be fun. I'm probably looking forward more to the PG-13 version of Deadpool 2 than I am Dark Phoenix. So there you go. Yeah. There you yes, go. I, me too. I, I am also just looking forward to the, the Dark, Phoenix, Dark Phoenix jokes in a Deadpool 3 yes. far more than I am the actual Dark Phoenix movie. All right. Uh, another trailer for a superhero movie, but this one looks fucking great. Mm-hmm. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, the animated Spider-Man movie with Miles Morales, got another new trailer this week. And it's got Spider-Ham in it, Sean. It's got so much Spider-Ham in it, Jonathan. And I'm so happy. It's like, it feels like they made it for us because you, very publicly on this podcast, like several weeks ago, first learned of Spider-Ham when I introduced you to Peter Porker. I, so I, I did. <laughs> so I you still know. can't believe that's a thing. And I really can't believe it's in a Hollywood movie now, Peter Porker. <laughs> Oh man, it's yeah. The each trailer for Spider Verse looks better than the last, and the first one was like one of the most astounding trailers I've ever seen for an animated movie. So I am I am intensely excited for this fucking film, Jonathan. I really am, especially because it it's you would think where we would be in a moment of like Spider Man overload, but this looks so different than anything else in the Spider Man like mass media world right now. Just as the Spider-Man video game did not look at all like the Tom Holland movies or the Sam Raimi movies or now this animated movie, it feels like there's there is so much room in the Spider-Man mythos that like all these different versions of the property can play in their own corners of the playground and they're not gonna get on each other's turf. And this really just looks like a a fun, uh, interesting, like character-driven but also very silly take on the Spider-Man mythos, and I'm so excited. And again, that animation style, good God, it looks cool. Yeah, yeah, I just, I don't want them to put out another trailer. I want, like, I if they do, I'll probably not even watch it because I kind of want to go yeah. silent into it at this point because I feel like I know enough. Um, yeah, it's, I'm just very happy that there is a, that there even is a theatrical, like, superhero, like, animated film. Because we have I, talked about this a lot on this podcast, that it is very strange um, that that has not become more of a thing. Which, obviously, it's, you know, America's relationship to 2D animation on, like, a big scale is very weird. Uh, but, yeah, it, it makes so much sense 
to make this really cool, creative, experimental 2D animated superhero movie, and we just haven't ever gotten those, really. So I'm yes. happy that we're getting it, and I'm very happy that we're getting a Spider-Man one. I hope this movie does gigantic box office. Even if like the movie is not good, I think it's going to be great. It looks awesome. But even if it's not good, I hope it makes a ton of fucking money, because I want studios to do more animated superhero movies, because comic books are animated, superheroes are in comic books... Maybe do more animated superhero stuff, because animated TV superhero shows are great, but they don't have the budget of a movie, you know? Yeah. And that's what I want to see more of. It's it's really neat. I think this could be a really cool way for other companies that aren't Marvel to make their mark with whatever superhero properties they have also, because this doesn't look like an MCU movie. It looks mm-hmm. like something somebody else would be making, you know? And And I like that a lot, so I'm excited for this. I hope also that in the eventual Blu-ray release that there's a whole, like, 15-minute Spider-Ham short. Now that we have a theatrical Spider-Ham, he has to have his own short film. Yes. You know how, I think it was on the movie Coco, the Pixar film, they attached, like, a 45-minute Frozen short to it? Yeah. I want I want that to happen to a future, like, Sony animated movie where they have a 45-minute Spider-Ham short that just surprises everyone. You're right. It would it would be even better if it was on a Blu-ray for a movie that was not a Spider-Man movie. And yes. just Spider-Ham's just on there. Spider-Ham, the movie. Spider-Ham, turn off the dark. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Spider-Ham, here we go again. <laughs> All right. Uh, and here's an animated movie I might be even more excited for. Oh, Dragon yeah. Ball Super Broly, the new Dragon Ball film, had a big panel at New York City Comic Con this weekend with the entire English cast and several members of the Japanese cast and production staff, including Masako Nozawa, Miss Goku herself. Uh, they showed off the new trailer for the film, which is a fucking thing. And uh, also, just I want to go through this because it's really cool to me. I am so obsessed with the new animation style in this movie, which if you're not a longtime fan of Dragon Ball, it might not make sense to you. But, like, watch the trailer for Dragon Ball Super Broly and then watch the trailer or a clip from any other Dragon Ball thing, especially in the last 10 years, and it will be fucking night and day to you. And what it is is that there's a new animation supervisor and character designer on the film, and this is notable because only three people have fulfilled that role for the franchise before. So the new guy is a guy named Naohiro Shintani, and he was there at the panel talking about the new animation style. Again, he's only the fourth person to fill this role in the history of the franchise. The other three are Minoru Maeda, Tadayoshi Yamamuro, and Katsuyoshi Nuk- Nakatsuru. Uh, Maeda was this person for all of the original Dragon Ball anime and up through the Frieza arc of Z. Yamamuro and Nakatsuru have split duties from there on out, although for the recent movies and for the Super TV show, it was all um, Tadayoshi Yamamuro. And these are the people who uh, basically supervise the animation at the franchise level. They adapt Akira Toriyama's art to the films, to the anime. And again, it's been those three people for like 30 plus years now. And especially lately, it's mostly been Tadayoshi Yamamuro. So it's a big shift to have a new person on board. And uh, now Hiro Shintani is clearly injecting new blood into things because the way this movie appears to look like a moving colored version of Akira Toriyama's manga just kind of boggles my mind how fucking amazing it looks. And I'm glad he was there to talk about it. I'm glad we got some more great quotes from Masako Nozawa talking about playing Goku. I think it's always cool when the English and Japanese casts get to interact because the English cast is always just kind of in awe of their Mm -hmm. Japanese counterparts. And yeah, I think this movie's going to be pretty big, Sean. 
Yeah, no, that fucking trailer is fucking ridiculous. It looks so unbelievably gorgeous. Yeah, and like everything you said about it, it really does evoke that Toriyama's manga come to life. Which is like it's it's it feels good to be playing Dragon Quest Eleven and see that trailer because it's like yes. everything feels like it feels like everything else has caught up to Toriyama. Like everything that else that like represents his art is like getting there. Um, but then also, I just feel like that trailer. Another element of it that pushes it over the edge is the use of color is so yes. stark and so beautiful. Um, and there's just like particularly most of the trailer is this big flashback um, scene to Planet Vegeta before it's blown up and all that stuff. And it's that like sunset on Planet Vegeta and it's just bathed in this orange and pinkish light when Frieza gets there. All that stuff is just beautiful. And and it showed a whole side of the movie that we have not seen before, which is adapting some of that Dragon Ball Minus stuff and and sort of retouching the origins of Goku and Vegeta and Broly because we've only ever seen the, you know, Goku, Vegeta, Broly, like, fighting on that, like, probably Earth in, like, the Antarctic or whatever they are. So it's cool to see that, like, this movie has a much bigger scope to it um, than most other Dragon Ball movies have had. I'm almost surprised, given how stylistically starkly different this is from the past, that this is called Dragon Ball Super Broly, because it doesn't look like Dragon Ball Super at all. Like, to the degree where, like, uh, Frieza's color scheme in that trailer is completely different than it's ever been in the anime before. Uh, and, and different than in the manga, because when the manga did color, it was a two-color sort of thing with, like, reds and, and uh, blacks. So it's there's things like that where, like, it seems like nothing is sacred in how they're kind of approaching the animation here. It's almost like they're starting from the ground up again. Um, and it also, to me... I, uh, so I'm watching through Dragon Ball Super now. I've finally, like, taken the plunge. I got through the two horrible retelling arcs of the Battle of Gods and Resurrection F movies, and I'm deep into the uh, Universe 6 versus Universe 7 arc. And I am enjoying the show. The animation in Super is ass. It is terrible. I hear it gets better. You can it assure gets, me of that. It I'm... definitely gets better as it goes along. Like, okay. you're still in the period where it's figuring itself out. It's not till you get to the Trunks Goku Black stuff that it starts really getting there. And then once you get to the Tournament of Power, there are episodes in Tournament of Power that are just, like, unfucking believably good. And that's great. And, and you know, I, I know it had significant production difficulties at this point in its lifespan. Like, super kind of uh, – it was basically someone at Toei was like, let's make a Dragon Ball show. And then two weeks later, they had to have it on the air. And that's why they did the retelling arcs. And that's why the animation is so rough. It was just a, a very troubled, rushed production. But it just – it's the worst – Dragon Ball has ever looked on anime, at least the stretch I'm in. So I think seeing this movie and like a clear recommitting to let's make this uh, a leader in animation for the industry, not something that feels like it's it's stuck in the transition to doing digital animation, you know, um, I think is very cool. Yeah. I'm also curious to see if, like, one of the reasons why they're marketing it, Dragon Ball Super, I mean, one of the reasons is obviously Dragon Ball Super is very yeah, I mean, popular that's, it's internationally. Popular, yeah. But then also, I'm curious to see if this movie is going to, like, transition into whatever. Like, like I'm, I'm starting to feel like, especially since they're, like, clearly connecting Broly and Goku and Vegeta really closely in their origins. If maybe Broly, like, is still around after this movie and, like, they transition into a Phase 2 on Super or give it a new name, like Super Z or whatever they'd call it. And, and Broly might be an ongoing character, you know? That's it's. It yeah. feels like what you say. It feels like they're recommitting to being a leader in, in terms of that animation. But it also feels like they are not... This does not feel like the swan song for Dragon Ball Super. No. This feels like the next step. Yeah, I mean, 
Dragon Ball is in this weird position where, you know, earlier today I was I was looking through some of my manga and I was looking at the the last volume of Z uh, or of the, of the whole series, volume forty two, where um, you know the series ends, Goku flies off with Oob, and then there's a little message from Toriyama about how it's over, and I'm like. Man, this guy has no idea what's coming in about 20 years. You know, yeah. like this was 1995. In 2013, we get Battle of Gods. In 2015, we get Resurrection F and Super. And Dragon Ball becomes a, an even bigger global phenomenon than ever. And he's going to be really closely connected to it again. And it's it's been a really crazy arc for this series. Because, you know, most series don't get a second shot at life, let alone kind of get even bigger, weirdly, you know, than they had been before. So it's it's an exciting time to be a fan because it's impossible to know exactly what's going to happen, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So this movie's coming out in January. I am excited for us to do our episode where we go watch the original Broly trilogy and bang our heads against a wall about it. I'll fucking do it. I'll fucking suffer through Bio Broly if you will. I will. I will. They, they have nice animation, so I'm good. Um, and Bio Broly is very short. So. It's, it's very short. It's one of those movies that is in a hurry to get out of there. Yeah. So. All right. Sean, let's uh, move on to our main topic of the day. Let's talk about Doctor Who Series 11, Season 37, however you want to count it. Episode 1, The Woman Who Lived, written by our new showrunner, Chris Chibnall, starring our brand new Doctor, Jodie Whittaker, and a whole new group of companions. So let's uh, recap. We're going to have spoilers from this uh, point out. Did I say the woman who lived? I meant the woman who fell to earth. The woman yes. who lived is the episode with that is an episode of Doctor Who. That's it's, it's, the two parter with uh, Game of Thrones lady. Yes, Maisie Williams. Okay, that's the second one of those two. The girl who died yeah. and the woman who lived. This is the woman who fell to earth, written by and starring the people I mentioned before, directed by Jamie Childs, also new to the franchise, with our new composer, Sagun Akinola, uh, with our other new stars, Bradley Walsh, Tosin Cole, and Mandip Gill. So, new people abound. We gave some general impressions. We're going to have spoilers for this episode from here on out. But let's dive deeper. We both said we thought this episode was a mixed bag, but the things we liked, we really liked. Where do you want to start with the woman who fell to earth, Sean? Um, oh, that's a good question. Let's, I mean, let's start with like what I think is really interesting to go in with, which is the Stephen Moffat did not touch this at all, which yes. is the first time that's happened in Doctor Who in a long time, and and like that was one of the interesting experiences of watching this was that like. I knew that that period of the show was over in my head, but like there was, it took me a while to like get around to this. You have like, right, fucking holy shit. Like it's been, I mean, it's been the entirety of modern Doctor Who, even if Stephen Moffat was not running the show in RTD's days, like he was such an influential part of it and wrote so many of the best episodes that it's like not having that touch and that like stylistic direction on it at all. Because Moffat like, and RTD also shared a lot of stylistic qualities. Like, yes. there was the switch to HD that happened between the two. Well, it was actually at the very end of the, the Tenant run. But, you know, other than that, the episodes look different because of how they were captured. Like, they had the same composer. They had Murray Gold. I think they had a very similar, sty- uh, you know, sensibility in terms of how they structured seasons and in terms of how many episodes they wrote as showrunner. And sort of the general, you know, uh, way they had, like, standalones versus story arc things. Like, there were definite differences, but the Doctor Who of RTD and the Doctor Who of Stephen Moffat felt like a very continuous Doctor Who in some ways. Like, I almost think, like, 
the switch from Matt Smith to Capaldi was a bigger switch than David Tennant to Matt Smith in a lot of ways, you know, uh, as Moffat himself evolved. But this is a really stark difference. It's not just that, yeah, Stephen Moffat's not here. It's that Chris Chibnall um, has a very different style, which I would describe as much more grounded, um, less colorful than this episode so far, um, a little slower and quieter. Um, and I'm not sure how that's going to manifest itself through more episodes, but there was definitely a feeling for me of like, right, this is this is a different Doctor Who now. Yeah, it like honestly, it feels the like the most extreme shift in the show since 2005. Like, I don't think there is a transition in the middle of classic Doctor Who that is as dark as this. There are like, if you look at you know a first Doctor episode and then look at a seventh Doctor episode, there's a huge change that has happened there. But it's been very gradual over the years. And there have been some slightly bigger shifts like Pertwee and having color. And it's more like Earth-focused. But the general structure and tone of the show was still the same throughout all of classic Doctor Who in many ways. And this feels like a like a really hard reset button um, down to... And I know that you'll probably have things to talk about because you watched the BBC America version. I did not. I, I didn't even bother with that. So the version that I watched was like there are little black bars at the top and bottom because the aspect ratio is different. And, and you know, it's like an hour-long episode, so it's not as big as some of, like, the Deep Breath or, like, the extra Moffat episodes, but it's longer than your average episode of Doctor Who. And it, like, it feels like, and it's, you know, it's, it feels like maybe a lazy comparison to use, but it's the obvious comparison to use. It felt a lot, particularly in the first 15 minutes, like Broadchurch. Like, it felt like that more kind of cinematic, as you said, more grounded, more slow kind of slightly more considered and earthy approach to it than the the very TV madcap adventure thing that, that Moffat and RTD had with Doctor Who. I got the Broadchurch feeling too, because I think like one of the ways I think of Moffat and RTD is similar is that their version of Earth is fairly closely connected. I think the two of them, which is that it's our reality, but it's heightened a little bit. Like I think RTD set that down in Rose, which is that, you know, there were big shifts in how RTD treated Earth there of, like, we're going to go to a more working-class thing with Rose, and we're going to see... I mean, it was all set in and around Cardiff, which also Stephen Moffat kept, um, which is the other big shift here. We're in Sheffield. We're not in Cardiff anymore. They've gone to a whole different part of... You know, I don't know English geography that well, but even not knowing that, you can kind of tell that we're just... We're in a different part of the country. Um, but, yes, there's there's sort of a a heightened fairy tale storybook sort of way that Earth itself is just presented in modern Doctor Who up until this point. And here it does feel more like the Broadchurch reality of, oh, these are normal people who, if the Doctor never walked into their lives, would be the stars of, like, you know, uh, either a Chris Chibnall show or a Mike Lee drama or some other kind of, like, BBC-centric sort of thing, and, and it would not be fantasy at all. But then there is this hint of fantasy, and the way it enters is even kind of slow and subtle. And I like that. I think it's an interesting shift, and it, it does feel maybe more than anything else like the place where Chris Chibnall most clearly puts his stamp on things. Um, because it is hard to say after one episode what his style is. You know, the notable thing about Chris Chibnall is that, unlike Stephen Moffat, he has not written any notable episodes of Doctor Who. He's written three or four, and they're fine. But they're not, you know, he did not write a blink or something like that. We do not know what a great Chris Chibnall episode of Doctor Who is. I hope we find out. Um, but this also does not feel like Dinosaurs on a Spaceship or The Power of Three, his other episodes. This is him clearly trying to figure out where to stake out his version of the show. 
and it is different, and it's going to, I think, take a couple episodes to figure out what fully defines that, but I do think what you said about how it has that broad church quality of we're in the real world that is stark and different. Yeah, and it's just, I think, it's like so much of the show, or at least in this episode, um, feels like it is presenting itself with this very almost like visuals first kind of presentation to me. It's like, you know, it's making use of that, that wider angle. It's as like, and, and being in Sheffield, uh, you know, it's like a lot of big open spaces. There are some really beautiful shots that make use of this like big horizon that they have. And some of my favorite moments in the episode and my absolute favorite moment, which comes near the end of the episode where, um, oh shit, what's his name? The, the, the main sort of, protagonist dude of, of the companions yeah ryan he's trying to ride his bicycle and keeps on falling over and it zooms way out and you have the doctor in the foreground that's my favorite part of the whole episode and typically in doctor who this isn't just a moffat thing this is just a doctor who thing doctor who's so dialogue driven typically as a tv show that my favorite moments in doctor who are never shots they're always dialogue there it's always something that the doctor says or back and forth between the doctor and like some other weird character that's so what sticks out to me in doctor who all the time and it's what made moffat such a great fit is he's such a sharp dialogue writer here it feels like that's not necessarily chibnall's strength as a writer or a showrunner but like he does bring this quality has brought people to the show with that different focus and it has made it feel I don't think this is necessarily a, like, it's better or it's worse kind of thing. It's just it's a different um, style. It feels like it is trying to use the visual element to convey a lot more about the the story and the nature of, of the story you're telling than going so dialogue first. It's a gorgeous episode of television. Yeah. And I want to talk about the visuals and the direction by Jamie Childs at length because it is... It feels like a, a, you know, I think the Moffat era got very visually impressive at a certain point. Um, it was clearly an evolution over the years from, like, when Matt Smith first stepped on screen. And the 11th hour is kind of, it's a great episode, but it's a very jankily directed episode of television. All the way to, you know, Rachel Talalay doing, you know, Heaven Sent and Hell Bent. And you're like, we've come a long way. This feels like another step of, like, we're going to push further in that direction. But I could not appreciate any of that. Watching this fucking thing on BBC America, I... So, okay, let me set this up. They were doing a global simulcast today, which is to say they were going to air the episode at the same time around the world. The last time, the only other time this happened was for the 50th anniversary special. When it happened for the 50th anniversary special, BBC America just aired the fucking episode. They didn't cut it up. They didn't have trailers. They didn't, like, you know, crop out the image or anything like that. They just showed the fucking episode. And so I reasonable logical person thought when they said global simulcast again they were being honest and that's what they were going to do and it wasn't they just aired the episode at the time at at 12:45 uh, my time um so the same time it was airing in England at at 6:45 over there 7:45 and but but what they did is two horrible things one they cropped the episode so this and the whole new season of doctor who has been shot in a wider aspect ratio um doctor who up to this point modern doctor who has been shot at 1.78 to 1 or 16 by 9 so it completely fills your widescreen television that's the normal aspect ratio of tv these days this was shot in 200 to 1 so 2.0 to 1 which is not quite full anamorphic widescreen like an avengers movie 
or a Star Wars movie. It's in between the two. So it's like mid-level black bars there. And they cropped it down to 16 by 9. That's still cutting out like 10 to 20% of the image. And you can absolutely tell because the way characters are framed in this very visually conscious episode of Doctor Who... It was like super crowded and it looked horrible on screen and the image quality was just extra bad even by like streaming TV standards. So that was one bad thing that they did that baffled the hell out of me that, you know, Doctor Who would go to the immense trouble of shooting in a new aspect ratio, which is not as simple as they put black bars in at the edit stage. They shot on new lenses and new cameras like this is an expensive thing they did. And their worldwide partner in the United States just decided, fuck you guys, we're going to crop your show. I can't believe they got away with that. So that's one thing. They also had commercials in there. That is not the end of the world in and of itself. TV has commercials. But this episode, Sean, is 60 minutes long. Mm -hmm. It took them 100 minutes to air the episode. It was 60 minutes and it had 40 fucking minutes of commercials. It had an over 50% ratio of commercials. And it was constant. Like, I don't think five minutes of the episode went by without commercials airing. And it just dragged the pacing down to the fucking floor. Now, I did download the original UK BBC version of the episode. I've already watched it. So I saw the episode twice today so I could see the proper version. It played much, 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 much better on second viewing because there's things like the entire climax at the construction site. It's a longish sequence, but only like 10 minutes. It's not, you know, a huge, like, extraneous length. It had two commercial breaks. Like, oh my I, God. that took about half an hour to move through on BBC America. So I thought, if I had, like, if I were doing this review with you only after watching the BBC America version, I'd be like, why were they at that construction site for so fucking long? They're not. But when you have 20 minutes of commercials in there, it feels like they are. So, yeah, BBC America can go fuck themselves. I'm never watching Doctor Who on there again. You know, normally I don't mind it that much. But also, like, that's not a normal commercial ratio. Normally, if you have, like, a 45-minute episode of television, you have 15 minutes of commercials. You know, a comedy is 22 minutes and 8 minutes of commercials. If you have 60 minutes, you might go an hour and 15 for your commercials. You don't go an hour and 40. It was ludicrous. Yeah, I definitely had this moment when I was looking at, like, they were, they were doing the global simulcast thing. And I definitely, like, rolled the dice. And I came up right with the, like, no. It's like, I've trusted you a couple of times, BBC America, and you fucked me every time I have. So, no. And I decided I would just wait and download the episode a little bit after it aired and watch a good version of it, and, and that I proved to be I proved right in that one. You're absolutely right. I wish I could have done that just from the start, because, man, they they just fucked it up. They just, they really fucked it up, and I, you know, when I got the my nice HD download of the episode later, I was looking at it, and I was just astonished, because I'm like, this is a beautiful fucking episode, and that cropping combined with the constant interruptions and everything just really dragged it down. So if you only saw it on BBC America, find another version. Um, pirate the shit out of it. I don't care. Like, they they butchered the show. And I'm I'm curious if someone at BBC America is going to be getting a call on Monday being like, yeah, you can't crop Doctor Who. You know, like, that's not okay. Like, it, it baffles me that they were able to do that. It's it's so stupid. It's so stupid. Yeah. So 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 BBC America fucked it up, but you know, that that stylistic change I found like 
particularly for the first 15 minutes, I found, like, really invigorating. There's a, yeah. you know, it has a long sort of intro, but not in a bad way. In fact, it's maybe kind of my favorite, like, sustained section of the episode was that, like, kind of getting into it and, and being introduced to our characters, um, three of whom we know are companions, one of whom... We know it's not a companion, so it's very early. It's like, I'm sorry, lady. I like you a lot, but you are not long for this world because I have not seen you in enough promotional images or the other trailers. I My condolences. Uh, but yeah, so we're introduced to these characters. And then, as you said, there's like a little hint of the supernatural stuff early on with like the weird thing that looks like a slime, slime from Dragon, from Dragon Quest. Quest 11 I, yes uh, I, I'm glad that you we are on the same page of that because I saw it appear of like that's just I I would never make this connection if I was not currently playing Dragon Quest 11 but it looks exactly like a fucking slime without the face um but there is something about that that honestly I'm only making this comparison because it's me but it felt so much like the beginning of a like early 2000s Godzilla movie of like a weird like slowly introducing the little bits and pieces it's like or the the 2000s late 90s Gamera movies of like it's a little bit more grounded and you're kind of starting with these human characters and then this little thingy pops up and then the only thing that was different instead of like it hatching and it being a little thing that then becomes a giant thing 30 minutes later it, it hatches later and is only a little thing for the whole episode. Yes. If, they, if they had turned it into a giant thing, then it would have been a Power Rangers episode, which maybe would have been a better climax. Uh, almost certainly. But, yes, I, I really like the first 10 to 15 minutes here. I like it. It takes about exactly 10 minutes for the Doctor to show up, and I think um, it's a very well-paced first 10 minutes um, to both maximize her first appearance, but also, like, get us into the world of these characters before she shows up. And then I think when she does show up, I like that they just sustain this kind of breakneck pace. Uh, I, I mean, here's one notable thing. If I'm not mistaken, this is the only episode of Doctor Who that has no version of the theme song in it. Um, because, yeah, I think there's no, there's uh, what was it? It was Sleep No More. The the episode Ooh, from season that's nine. True. That's true. That also that was because I remember being like, oh my god, this is the first Doctor Who episode to not have the opening theme song in the opening. Um, but there is there's a nice little musical sting when Jodie Whittaker first falls in. Yes. That is the and they do that. So it's like I and honestly, I kind of wish even if it would have been really late in the episode to do an opening theme. I wish that they had just gone into the full opening theme, personally. I, oh, like, I thought they were going to do that. She falls through the roof and she says, oh, hey, guys. And it's like, that's 100% where you would put in the opening theme. And you'd go into it and then you'd come back and she'd fight the monster. Like, I I don't know if I'm disappointed, but I there's a very clear opportunity where they could have put it in. Yeah, and it's just, I, you know, I kind of need the the opening theme to Doctor Who to get me going, you know. it's It's just like a part of me. And so it's like I kept on kind of waiting for it to happen, and then it didn't. I'm like, come on, guys. It's, and you – yeah, it, go ahead. You know, it's it's kind of a surfacey sort of thing. Obviously, it's just the theme song. But at the same time, like there are so many things in this episode sort of working to disorient you from the Doctor Who-ness of it in part that Doctor Who is not in it for ten minutes, you know, that I, I would have felt just a little more at home if we would have – she drops in through the roof – and it's like, oh, hi. And then we do, you know, do the theme song. We hopefully get a credits face, you know, fingers crossed, Doctor Who credits face. And then we came back. It would just be a little more to really, like, make it make it feel at home. Because it it is, again, this is not a bad thing, but it is a little, there's a lot here working to kind of, as I said, disorient the viewer, any longtime viewer of Doctor Who, right? 
Yeah, um, and and they are really sticking it to us of like we have to wait a whole week to find out whether or not they fucked up and didn't put a credit space in there because it's yeah. like they're just afraid of the the intense Twitter backlash that would happen if they didn't. So it's like uh-huh. we have to we are, we need to keep this pitchfork sharpened, guys. This is the one Twitter mob that that I would be a part of. Is like bring fucking credit space better be in there, guys. It's just you know I I think frankly it would be sexist. If the first female doctor does not get to have a credits face, because exactly. all but two of the male doctors got credits faces, goddammit, female doctors should get it too. Exactly. So, anyway, alright, um, but yes, we, we get our new doctor, and we have a fun action sequence. I do think, like, after things have kind of settled down after the episode on the train, I think the pace of the episode is sort of up and down and all over the place past that point. There are sequences I really love, like when they're in the weird warehouse and she builds the new sonic screwdriver. All of that is outstanding. Um, there's some other little moments peppered throughout that are really good. And then you have a, a fairly flaccid, like, climax that sort of makes no sense and yeah. and doesn't really work. But then you have a final 10 minutes that's very character-driven and is really, really good and has that beautiful moment you were talking about with Ryan trying to ride the bike and you get a great speech from the doctor about her family and just lots and lots of really nice little moments. So I, I really do think, like, it's a case where I think the character, like, foundational side of this episode is fairly uniformly strong throughout. I think the only character who is really underserved is Yasmin. We don't really feel like we get to know her much in this story, but I like the actress. I like the, her chemistry with like the cast and I look forward to getting to know her more. Uh, I love all the other characters that we saw, uh, particularly Ryan, I think is a really interesting character. And I think there's even a discussion to be had of like, would this have been stronger if he were more of kind of our POV into the episode? Cause I thought he was going to be after the first 10 minutes and then he isn't. Um, so we could talk about that. Um, but I really do like these characters. I want to see more of them. The monster of the week thing was bad and didn't work, but you know, that happens on Dr. Who from time to time. So yeah. Yeah. So, so what, what episode or what element of the episode do you want to dive into? Just, Let's let's just get the elephant out of there. Jodie Whittaker is the fucking okay. best. God damn. She's so good. I I you know, I could sense this just from like the trailers and clips and promotional images we saw, but the uh, I said this earlier, the amount of time it takes for her to show up on screen and then the amount, you know, the time between that and us just in our heads like that's the doctor, that's Doctor Who. There is no time. It's it's fucking instantaneous. And even with doctors I love, sometimes it takes a couple of minutes. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like, I actually think it takes, you know, for instance, for Peter Capaldi, who I think is as good of Doctor Who as we've ever had, you know, most of Deep Breath is kind of devoted to getting us to a place where that character feels like the Doctor again. You know, these things happen sometimes. Jodie Whittaker shows up, and it is just completely instantaneous that you look at her and you see... Her body language and her vocal patterns and the way she says things and addresses situations. And it's just like, that's the Doctor. That's Doctor Who. And her being the first female Doctor is not a part of this episode. Like, there are two very brief references where Yasmin calls her Madam. And she's like, why are you calling me Madam? It's like, you're a girl. And she's like, oh my god, I am. And it's just like the doctor's like, that's cool. I will take that in later. <laughs> we're in, a, you know, we're in a stressful situation. And then later on, it's the realization of like, right, I don't have any women's clothes because I haven't had to do this before. And so she has to go buy clothes. And other than that, it's just the doctor is a different gender now. We're going to tell a Doctor Who story. And I think 
that was the exact right way to play it, that that is just not an important diegetic part of the story at this point. Maybe more of that will come up later, but it doesn't have to. It's just the Doctor has a new body. The Doctor does not particularly care whether the body is male or female. It's like, this is a cool experience that I get to experience something new because the Doctor is fundamentally curious in that way. But other than that, it's just the Doctor. And Jodie Whittaker just gets to play the Doctor, and she plays it extraordinarily well. She is very, very funny. You know, I have not seen Jodie Whittaker in anything particularly comedic before. Broadchurch is not exactly a laugh riot, especially for <laughs> yeah. her playing the grieving mother of the dead child, you know. Um, like, her most prominent roles, again, are not comedic in nature. So that was a, a wonderful surprise to see just what great comic timing she had. But I think she also plays some of the dramatic moments very, very well. And she's just just born for the part. It's, it's, a, it's a match made in heaven. Yeah, no, she is absolutely just, like, firing on all cylinders immediately. And and the thing that probably struck me the most, kind of like with you, was just how funny she was. Because it wasn't, you know, because I don't have much experience with her as an actress outside of Broadchurch, so I didn't know what she would bring to the role necessarily. And that like, I was... think her other most famous role is the Black Mirror episode, where she's oh, yeah. playing, like, a woman with, like, chronic depression or something. Like, again, she's been in pretty heavy stuff. Yeah, so so she brings this, like, lightness and humor and charm to it. And it's something where it's very clear, you know, I'm, I'm glad that they're doing the, the traditional Doctor Who thing that has always worked really well, which is make the subsequent Doctor a, like, a bit of a mirror of the previous one, where, you know, particularly from the at the beginning in Season 8, you know, the 12th Doctor with Peter Capaldi was very grumpy and sort of aloof, and he was so alien, and he was so, you know, put himself apart very deliberately from people, and then Jodie Whittaker's version of the character is much more that, like, immediately she's jumping in. She's, like, asking people's names. She's, like, you know, like, hopping up on everything and, and being hilarious and, and bouncing around. And she has that quality that is a bit more of, like, the David Tennant, Matt Smith thing. And one of the elements that made the David Tennant, Matt Smith transition slightly weird was both those takes on the Doctor were very similar. Um, so I'm glad that this is not, and it would have been very weird to have like Jodie Whittaker be this very grumpy or like kind of person, especially seeing this performance, but it works so well and transitions so nicely from where the 12th doctor was at the end point of his life that even though this obviously is a very big shift in a lot of ways for Dr. Who, I think there was definitely a care in whether it was coincidence based on what Christian wanted to do or there was a deliberate choice made based on what Peter Capaldi had done. It feels like this very natural transition for her, the character. And if you like kind of put your mind out of the POV of the episode and like put your mind in her head, there's this nice continuum for me between where Peter Capaldi left off and now what Jodie Whittaker is doing with the character. Absolutely. I, I actually watched the last 20 minutes of Twice Upon a Time this morning before the episode aired. Um, I didn't wind up having enough time to rewatch the whole thing, but I just kind of wanted to see the regeneration again. And, you know, that is – it's a phenomenal episode and it's beautiful mm -hmm. and heavy. But it also, like, the Doctor has arrived at this place of, like, immense self-knowledge at the end of the Moffat era, right? It's like, I think I know what the Doctor is supposed to be and who I can be as the Doctor – and I'm gonna I'm gonna let that go and kind of take fate let fate take me where it will now Doctor I let you go and you can kind of feel like I think the Doctor at the end of the the Peter Capaldi body is ready to do something new and he then she falls through the roof of this train and there's an adventure and it's like 
I'm going to be the doctor and I'm going to save some people and, and have some fun doing it. And that totally feels like the transition that character would make in that moment to me. You know, like, to me, there's a very clear echo when, when uh, the 13th Doctor has that speech in the middle of the episode where she says, she has the whole thing about what regeneration is. And she says, you know, but whoever I am, I know that I am supposed to, you know, help people when they are in need. That very much feels like an echo of Capaldi very consciously getting back to that place of, like, I'm the Doctor and I save people and that's what I do, you know? Um, yeah. So I agree that that transition is... Uh, extraordinarily smooth because as I think Stephen Moffat said in one of the interviews post twice upon a time, this is the only show where you can say Jodie Whittaker is playing a older version of Peter Capaldi (laughs) and you buy it. That's the magic of Doctor Who. Jodie Whittaker does not look like an older version of Peter Capaldi, but she is in this show and you totally buy it if you're a longtime viewer. Yeah. One one thing I do want to talk about a little bit with, because this is not Judy Whittaker, but it's more like the way the episode uses her as part of like part of the, some of the issues with the rest of the episodes is I do think the episode misses something by not giving her a little bit more of a range for to play with the Doctor because it's a you know and it's obviously we have a whole series and maybe I won't feel this way once we have like the rest of it and get a better sense of how the episodes tie together and if Chris Chibnall's going to play around with that or not because we only have this one. But there's she spends almost the entire episode in the very, like, breathless doctor, I'm running from place to place, figuring out this this problem mode. And while that's, like, it's very good to have a lot of that in the first episode because that's so much of what the doctor has to do, so I'm very confident she can do it really well. But I miss having the stuff in, like, 11th Hour and Deep Breath in particular both have these really good, juicy scenes. Like, the beginning of 11th Hour, that's just the Doctor and little Amy, and there's no big plot, there's no big pressure, and it just allows the Doctor to just be the Doctor. And then in Deep Breath, you have those handful of scenes, um, like when he's, you know, the the great who frowned me this face scene, and a couple of those in that episode, that while Deep Breath is a very messy episode, it has those really juicy moments that allow you to kind of explore this new version of the character and kind of play with it a bit more. I wish that this episode made a little space for just a couple of those scenes because it feels more like, like once you get past the Doctor's introduction, there doesn't feel a whole lot in this episode that feels special from that point of view of giving us this like moment to sort of sit with this new version of the Doctor and have her ponder things out or interact with things in a way that really lets her put her stamp on it, you know? I agree with that. I, I have no doubt that, like, we'll get to those things, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. I, it would be weird if they wrote an entire season where the Doctor never sat down and had a conversation with someone, you know? Um, but I agree for a first episode. I, I felt that. Uh, the other thing I felt is there's no, for lack of a better term, like, dark side here, you know? Right, yeah. Which you typically, like, if we're just restricting it to the modern series, you could apply this to some of the classic series too, but just let's look at the the four introductions we have. You typically get a moment with, like, 9 through 12 of some kind of hint of, of something else going on in the Doctor's mind, and it's typically the thing that's going to propel you forward to whatever that Doctor's character arc is, at least in their first season. So in in Rose, in Chris Eccleston's first episode, he's very high energy, but you also get the sense of, like, this guy's dealing with something. We learn that is going to be the time war, that sort of thing. David Tennant, there's the moment at the end where he has this, uh, you know, he's been kind of, uh, you know, big and goofy and, and a very, you know, fun version of the character, but then he just throws the Sycorax guy off the roof and says, maybe I'm a guy who doesn't give second chances. Maybe I'm that kind of guy. And there's just that little moment of, like, ooh, David Tennant's got an edge to him. Matt Smith, um, uh, Stephen Moffat liked to do this a 
little more, so you get several little moments of that where, like, Matt Smith clearly has, has more going on beneath, beneath the surface than just the fairy tale visage he has. And then Deep Breath is 100% introspection. It, like, goes the other way, and yeah. it actually does not have much of the Doctor running around and solving things. It's mostly things like Who Frowned Me This Face and the Doctor thinking about life. Um, so that one maybe has the ratio the other way around. But this one does not have any moment where I see, like, any kind of flash of something that the 13th Doctor is maybe grappling with under the surface that she's not sharing with the other characters. And again, that's not necessarily a huge problem. It could come later, but I just felt its absence because that's, that's a trope at this point for new yeah, Doctors. Yeah, like, yeah, I definitely agree. And that was one of the things that I was sort of trying to get at that you put well. That there is no sense of that other side of the, the Doctor, that other side of that darkness which in that doesn't necessarily feel like they're not going to do that. It more feels like this is because this is this big monster of the week episode and they're introducing three new companions. They just didn't make space for it, which is frustrating. The only sp- like space in the episode that I feel a little bit of it is in that kind of epilogue moment where she's looking over at Ryan. Not necessarily a darkness, but like something like a more of a mystery behind what she's doing or like maybe what she's think- thinking where you don't get as much insight and her kind of you know, having this opportunity to hang around in the aftermath, there's a little bit of that, like, what is she trying to do with these people? Like, really, is there maybe something slightly more going on there that she's not totally letting you in on as the viewer? Right. Um, But it's also hard to tell if, like, that's an intentional reading of the scene or not. Right, yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess the other thing I would say about how the Doctor is used, and again, overall, I want to say I, I think it's a it's a very well-written version of the Doctor. I think Chibnall very clearly has, like, the the syntax of the character's voice and movements and all that stuff down pat. That's great. If we didn't have that, that would be scary. We have, absolutely have that. He knows how to write the Doctor. Jodie Whittaker, great performance, um, you know, off, amazing leading lady. She can clearly, like, ground this ensemble in that sense. But it, if I have another complaint about the episode related to the Doctor, it's that I think it leans on the Doctor a little too much. Like, given that it's a fairly um, static presentation of the Doctor for at least this one hour, we do not, like, plumb any particular depths with the character this time, other than a couple of nice little monologues. Um, I think once she enters the picture, I think there's just maybe a few too many scenes that rely on the Doctor taking charge and doing Doctor Who-esque things. When we have these other three, four characters that we're trying to get to know who I think in some moments I wish, you know, maybe they turned the camera away from Whitaker just for a couple of seconds and, like, showed us the other characters a little bit more. Like, the balance at some points feels just a tad off, especially because it starts so intensely in the POV of the humans. Yeah, and it's one of those things where it is an important part of this episode to talk about is that it's not just a doctor intro episode. It's everything else in the companion intro episode and we haven't had that since eleventh hour. Right. You know, we had so we've we had Rose, which was one of those. Christmas Invasion wasn't because Rose stuck around. Then eleventh hour was, but Deep Breath wasn't because Clara stuck around. So we kind of had this like on again, off again with that. And and Rose in, like very specifically makes this really conscious choice that was obviously absolutely the right choice, which is to have Rose be the POV character for that episode and for basically that season and works so well. Um, 11th Hour isn't as hard on that, but it like it kind of plays with that a bit more, and it's more of a two-hander between Matt Smith and, and Karen Gillan as Amy. Um, and so she feels like, especially, you know, because she, it's just her as the 
primary companion has a little bit easier time splitting that focus. But I agree with you that it's one of the things that makes this episode sag really bad in the middle is that, like, I got so sold on Ryan specifically as a character, but all of these characters and, like, Ryan and Yaz's relationship in those, like, two scenes they basically have together early on like there's so much interesting stuff going on there and his sort of like the weird triangle relationship between ryan his nan and then graham who's this like weird sort of like grand like step granddad thing i don't know like i think that's, that's what you'd say yeah yeah that's like you don't usually have that relationship in a, in a show so it's kind of it's interesting because you don't usually explore that kind of like more distant familiar relationship um being replaced but there's so much interesting, juicy stuff in the early moments of this episode that kind of explore that, that I got so invested in. That you're right, once the Doctor enters the picture, she's really compelling and interesting, but they don't find a space to explore the other characters around that as much. And I think there is a missed opportunity that you were alluding to, to have Ryan be more of our center, because he is our center. Like, there's no doubt to me that if you have to pick one POV character, it has to be Ryan. Like, he's the one we're introduced first. He's the one that has the, like, clearest like struggle that he has to get over he is the one that has the most emotional investment in the like big tragic loss that occurs in the episode he has the most connection to like all like he's the only one that has a connection to all the other characters because he's a friend with yaz and then you know it's his nan and then his step granddad so he's really the fulcrum we're working around but the episode never takes advantage of that once the doctor's introduced which is i think a mistake i think it's a mistake and i think it's it's part of like Jodie Whittaker is so recognizably the Doctor that it doesn't really feel like we're being introduced to a new character, you know. Which right, yeah. Sometimes it does with a new Doctor. Sometimes it doesn't. For me, in this one, it's like like with deep breath, you have to spend that amount of time with Peter Capaldi because it's a radically different take on the character. This is the Doctor, and there's nothing wrong with that. It speaks immensely to the talents of Jodie Whittaker and Chris Chibnall's writing that it is so recognizably the character. But it's like. Okay, I know the Doctor. We'll get plenty with the Doctor. I have no worries about that. The show is called Doctor Who. These other people, I want to know more about them. Because I agree. I think... I, I was kind of assuming in the first ten minutes that Ryan was like, okay, Ryan is like companion A. Like, in, if, yes. if we're doing like an Amy and Rory thing, he's Amy... And these other two people would be in sort of the Rory position. And I actually thought that would be really interesting because then we would be reversing the central gender dynamic of Doctor Who since, you know, the second Doctor where you had a male companion. But ever since, it's always been, you know, male Doctor, female companion. Oh, maybe we're reversing that here. And that still could be the direction it goes. Like, I can see a world where, where you know, maybe Yaz and Graham leave the TARDIS at some point, but Ryan is still there. But at least for this episode, it then becomes much more of an ensemble thing. And I think a greater focus would have helped here. In part because I think the way they lay Ryan out as, you know, um, kind of a figure similar to Rose in that he has kind of this working class background. He has um, uh, a family, but he also feels kind of detached and is not, like, satisfied with the life he's leading. And then this, you know, mysterious person enters his life. Um, I think that's interesting. I think he's a very good version of that character. I, I found the whole thing of like tying it to that simple action of riding a bike to be a really great way to just get us 
in on that character right away. It's a really quick emotional buy-in with that character. I like the relationship he has with his Nan and with Graham. And then that also is a nice buy-in because I think Graham is a really interesting character. We meet Yaz through him and I'm like, oh, I like this person too. So it feels like they're definitely building a world around this character. And it's not that they, you know, completely, it's not like Ryan disappears. They're all there. But I do think like the middle is kind of nebulous on like who the focus is and I don't know if it works so well as an ensemble that that is okay. Like, uh, unless you're really, really good at writing and presenting ensembles, you generally need a, a focal point. And the focal point is the Doctor, which is fine. But again, the Doctor is is weirdly not the newest thing here. Yeah, no, absolutely everything you just said. And there's something about Ryan, like his struggle with like riding that bike, and he has dyspraxia, which makes it difficult for him to do like the really kind of coordinated movement. There, there's something that, like, is interesting to me that feels like, you know, if you're looking at, like, the gender dynamics being flipped, there's something that he's struggling with that feels like it's very emasculating to him that he can't ride the bike. And he, you know, and when he has to, you know, Yaz shows up and she's this probationary officer that's, like, almost in the police and he's, like, works in a, in a warehouse or wherever and, you know, and is kind of embarrassed by that. It feels like he's struggling with all these, like, you know, like, kind of coming to terms with or, like, you know, kind of coming of age issues of being, like, 19 or 20 years old. And and I found that really interesting because that's a space that Doctor Who doesn't explore because Doctor Who doesn't have, you know, the relatable male human figure because typically the 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 male figure in the show is the Doctor like 99% of the time. And so there is that space to explore that a little bit more and I'm excited to see what they do with it. But yeah, I'm it, it's it's something that's weird in this episode that I thought would be more clear would be the like – how are they going to handle the ensemble? What is like the companion ratio going to be? And that still feels very up in the air to me at this point. And I'm suspecting what I guess is going to happen is I bet they're going to switch episode to episode, which one is the most focused, particularly when at the end they introduce that Graham is um, in remission with cancer. That feels like a, Oh, they're laying the Graham or they're laying the, the tracks for the Graham episode. That's going to be like episode four or something is going to deal more with that side of his character. And then at the end of the episode, there's like that long preview they have of like, what feels like must be every single a- actor that's going to be in the rest of the season because <laughs> it's just yeah. like it goes on for like three minutes um and you get definitely get glimpses of what looks like probably Yaz's parents are in there and so it seems like we're going to explore those sides of those characters later so i'm guessing that's how they're going to do it but it's weird at the end of this episode not to have a good sense of where we are with the companions going forward also graham is totally gonna fucking die in the finale Oh, yes. There's, yes. there's no... I'm just... I'm sorry. I've watched too much television. You tell me that Graham has cancer in the first act. You set up that there's this intense family dynamic where he does not fully get along with Ryan. I just know where this is going, and his exit is going to be he is going to die to protect Ryan in some way or another after learning that his cancer is back. There's probably going to be a very dramatic scene where the doctor does a body scan on him and learns that, but he doesn't want to tell Ryan or Yaz, and so just the doctor and him know it, and so she knows why he's making this sacrifice, and Ryan is, you know, distraught, and then the next season will be just Ryan and Yaz or something. Um, That is completely coming, and that is not a bad thing. They have laid the groundwork very well for it because I like Graham a lot and I will be very sad, but I do not see a world in which Graham is in season 12 of Doctor Who. No, yes, you are, you are definitely right about that. Yes. Um, so anyway, I mean, let's talk about those other characters. Um, you know, we like Ryan a lot. I also do like, I, I think Graham um, is, is also a very different figure. Like, probably the mm. most, like, 
the closest analog would probably be Wilfred Mott from the David Tennant era, who was Donna's grandfather, um, an older grandfather than Graham is. You know, Graham is a little younger as grandfathers go. Um, but that's like the closest. But even then, Wilfred Mott was, other than in the end of time, not a normal traveling companion. Uh, and I like that dynamic. I like that there's kind of an an older guy here who is has been trying to be a good like step grandparent to his step grandson, um, but also has now lost the woman he loved, kind of lost this new life he had found. And I think there's so much potential for interesting dramatic stuff there. And I think the actor, um, uh, Grandma, no, yeah, Bradley Walsh. Uh, who is better known to British stars, because I guess he's been in a bunch of different things um, over in England, but I really liked him here. I think he makes a strong first impression. Yeah, he definitely does, and and it's that kind of thing where I'm curious to see how he operates as a full-time companion in other episodes, since it is so different, and it's like the other, you know, he's he's too old to be this, and like the dynamic of the show is very different, but it feels like he could maybe almost be like a pseudo-Ian Chesterton from the first Doctor era of like, I don't think he's going to be like Action Man who's getting in like big ritual fights with Aztec warriors, not that side of Chesterton, but the, the bit more of the like, no, he's more knowledgeable than your average companion is like a bit more like wise and like world weary and has that kind of adult perspective that you almost never get with the companions in Doctor Who. Um, and that could be interesting, but since we've never seen that explored really, and this is like, you know, he, in this episode, he does not feel like a companion to me in this episode. He feels like he's a supporting character that by the end, gets wrapped up into being a companion. I'm curious to see how he, like how he reacts to being in on alien worlds and that kind of stuff. Cause in this episode, he is very much the like, for a lot of it, the kind of, like, skeptic guy that's like, ah, there's never going to be aliens in Sheffield, what are you talking about? I'm curious to see... I hope they don't, like, sort of put him in the box of, like, the Scully box of always being the, like, disbelieving, like, no, this is that's nonsense, Doctor. Because I think that's a hard character to ever do on Doctor Who. I, I kind of doubt that, just because, I don't know, once you've thrown a character into the blackness of space, you lose a lot of the ground that allows you to uh, do the, do the uh, skeptic thing anymore. You'd be surprised at how far they got with Scully on the well, X-Files, I know. is all I'm saying. Yeah. Um, but, you know, as long as the X-Files was, it does not have the 55-year history of Doctor Who to draw upon for, for character references there. But, yes. Um, no, I agree with all of that. Uh, it is interesting, though. Like, really none of these characters become companions in the way we think of companions over the course of this episode. Because this episode ends with a lot of stuff still up in the air. We haven't seen the theme song. We haven't even seen the outside of the TARDIS, let alone the inside of the TARDIS. We really don't know what the normal week-to-week dynamic is. Like, this does not necessarily feel like this episode is going to be, when we look back on it in ten weeks, representative of what the season was. Because so much is kind of still left to go. And that's not how other Doctor Who showrunners have done this in the past. Like, you know, you watch Spearhead from Space, by the end of those four episodes... You know who the characters are, you know what the dynamic is, you know what a third Doctor adventure is going to look like, right? If you watch yeah. the 11th hour, the 11th hour is the same length and and has the same kind of big task on it, but gets through a lot more story in that it introduces Amy as both a 
little girl and a young woman. It introduces the 11th Doctor. It introduces their entire dynamic. It has multiple time jumps. It has a big alien threat. And it introduces this entire, I was going to say season-long arc, but it's really the entire, like, six-and-a-half-year arc of Stephen Moffat's tenure. So, like, the 11th Hour is this little, like, miracle of an episode because it gets so much in there. This episode, in part, I think, because it is structurally fairly messy and also because I think conscious decisions were made of we're not going to throw everything in this one episode... Um, it does not feel like we have been fully introduced to this era of Doctor Who yet in the way you normally would be after the first story. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And and then there's one other character we need to talk about a little yes. bit. Yaz, who is very good and has nothing to do in this episode, unfortunately. Sadly, nothing to do. It's it's too bad because there are... So the, the actress there is Mandip Gill, and I didn't say his name, but Ryan was Tossin Cole. Uh, all good actors, but yes, uh, I like her. She's got a very cool screen presence. I particularly like her with Ryan. That's really the only substantial scene she has opposite another character is with Ryan early on, but I liked watching them. There are like little glimpses of her having a more adversarial relationship with the Doctor than the other two have, I guess, you know, in that, you know, uh, Yaz is sort of supposed to be in charge on the train, but then the Doctor just kind of runs over everything. I think that's a character dynamic that I kind of wish had been explored a little more. Um, you know, I, I want to see more of this character, but she is not a major factor in this episode. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to more Yaz, but she definitely, like, ends up feeling like a lot more of an afterthought than I was expecting based on her introduction. I mean, it's tough because you've got, uh, you know, Doctor Who usually has to service two major characters and then some guests. This one is servicing uh, four major characters plus a major character who may or may not be recurring, the uh, the wife who dies, you know. So, like, uh, there's, there's a lot going on here and I, you know, something had to give and I guess it was Yaz in this case. Although, I do think there's a maybe more polished version of this script where I could see... All of those things getting serviced and working in tandem with one another. Because, again, I think there's an obvious avenue of character relationship with Yaz and the Doctor. It just doesn't really get explored. I think there's obvious avenues with the Doctor and all of these people. Some are explored well, some less so. Some intra-party relationships that are explored very well, like Ryan and Graham, or Graham and... Uh, I'm forgetting her name, but Grace, the, the grandmother, played by Sharon D. Clark. So, you know, it, it just... It feels like there are some things they could have that could have hung the story better together, and maybe that's why we should probably transition to talking about where the story gets a little messy. Yeah, definitely, and it's in the it's where Doctor Who always gets messy if it gets messy, which is in like the Monster of the Week plot, where and and it's something where there's a moment like probably like fifteen to twenty minutes into this episode around when the guys like sort of steal the the Dragon Quest slime and take it back to their weird workshop. And, and all that stuff going on that I had this moment of like, what if this episode ends and this like mystery is not solved? And like, like, because it's so much of it was so broad churchy up to that point. And there was like so many characters and the doctor had only been in it for a little bit at that point. And there was this moment where I was like, this is like, they're kind of building up this interesting, weird mystery. This doesn't feel like doctor who, like at that point, the episode did not feel like a single episode of television. It felt like the introduction to a season of television, the way like the first episode of a broad church would feel like it didn't feel like this is going to get resolved by the end. And it kind of feels like that was the introduction to an episode that they wrote. And then they decided, well, we're definitely not doing that for a full season of Doctor Who. So we're going to find some way to end this within the next 40 minutes and resolve all that shit. And it is like one of the more just sort of 
tossed off, have forgotten like alien plots I've seen in Doctor Who in a very long time. It's it's gobbledygook. A lot of it. I mean it. It was not until the second viewing that I got all of the exposition because like. They even have, like, the Doctor th- have an entire theory of what's going on that's like, okay, this could be interesting, and then just throw it out the next scene when she realizes, like, uh, no, they're not two alien species. They're actually one alien species and blah, 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 blah. And then it's, like, and, and just the overall, like, if you try to tie it all together, it's like, okay, there's this guy who has, what is his weird, like, human, Tim Shaw. Yeah, Tim the Shaw. The alien of the week who is from a warrior race who, to prove he's good at being a warrior, is tasked with going and hunting a human like it's the most dangerous game but for aliens. I don't know why killing a puny human would prove that this big bad alien is actually a big bad alien. That's kind of a weird plot hole to me. And apparently he's also done it before because that dude's sister was killed. But now he has to kill the random dude on the train. I don't know why it's a random dude on the train. I don't know why if you're riding Doctor Who you don't just make it one of your four companions and then like draw it all in really close. And then like you would have the the Grace, the grandmother, die at the end to defend the other person. And then it would all be much more emotional because the way Grace dies is at complete and utter random in this episode. and has like no impact when it actually happens. So yeah, that's my thoughts. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, basically what happened was, like, kind of, like, what I was saying is it feels like at the beginning they're giving you this, like, mystery or something where it feels like, oh, all these things are going to tie together. And then you actually find out that nothing has anything to do with anything else. It's like, or at least in terms of, like, the main monster plot is totally disconnected and could be the main monster plot of anything. Um, it has nothing to do with any of the themes of the episode. The Doctor gives this very random speech at the end of to the monster that's like, you can change and you can be whoever you want to be. It's like, it's a fine speech in and of itself. Has nothing to do with anything. Like, has no. nothing to do with this alien. I don't know why she's saying that other than it's the regeneration episode. And so I guess you have to say something like that. But yeah, like all that's so disconnected. As you were saying, it it ends up being this really profound coincidence that the Doctor just falls into the train where the random dude who isn't even a companion character, who's just a normal random human guy, is there that just so happens to be the person being targeted by basically the Predator, but with teeth in his face. And that's like such a, you know, if you don't want to try to untangle coincidences in a show like Doctor Who too much. But that one is one that feels particularly weird because it doesn't necessarily feel like it needs to be a total coincidence. At at the very least, it could be, like you said, one of the characters we've already introduced to and you can kind of cut down that little bit from it. Um, the, but the part of the plot that had me most rolling my eyes was in the very, this was the conclusion where you have that weird DNA bomb thing that feels like the most like tossed off excuse to have these characters stick with the doctor when it's first introduced of like, well, I guess we have to stay with the doctor because if we don't, these DNA bombs or whatever will blow up, which are bombs that are specifically made to like individually to you based on your DNA samples that will like unravel your body. If that's how the doctor explains it. And then at the end of the episode, apparently the doctor had off screen using her new sonic screwdriver, taken out the DNA bombs, put them in the weird tentacle thing and which is actually not an alien that the guy wants to fight, but actually the thing he used to cheat in the contest so that he could gather information about where the guy was and they just make it look like a big weird tentacle monster because I guess that's cool. And so since the DNA bombs at some point got the doctor put them into the, the tentacle monster, when that guy tried to gather some information again, 
Apparently, he's not just gathering data. He's also gathering physical objects that were put inside of the thing. And so he also has all five of the DNA bombs that blow up inside of the guy that does not have any human DNA whatsoever because he's a complete alien. So not only does he not have the specific DNA of these specific people whose DNA was specifically taken so that it was specifically kill them, he doesn't even have literally any DNA in common with them whatsoever at all. As far as we know, he might not even have DNA as we understand it um but apparently that really hurts him really bad it doesn't kill him but it hurts him somehow and then the other dude on the crane that he was hunting kicks off the alien man right when he's teleporting away to the thing because the doctor doesn't kill him and gives him the thing to teleport and so the guy's like yeah fuck you alien bastard and then the doctor's like you shouldn't have done that and kicked him and i'm like what is this scene what was that scene jonathan I have to say, the one upside of that entire crazy series of plot things is that it did allow Jodie Whittaker to show off a skill that is crucial for any good doctor to have, which is selling bullshit plot points. The doctor has to be really good at, in dialogue, selling awful writing because time to time, you know, Doctor Who is going to have an off week or something where the plot just doesn't come together. And the moment that I noticed it is, again, because I've seen this twice today... When she explains what the DNA bombs are, that is not a good piece of writing. Like, if you break down the dialogue, it is just kind of bonkers. I didn't notice it the first time because she really sells, like, these are, you know, bad DNA bombs and they'll melt your entire insides and no civilized galaxy should have them. And she makes it sound great and very Doctor Who-ish and I totally went on board with it. And it was not until my second viewing that I kind of was like, hey, this is... It's kind of stupid what the doctor is saying here, you know? Like, yeah. this is this is fucking stupid. And uh, again, very key skill. So the the episode lets her show off that side of something that every doctor is going to have to bust out at some point or another, right? Yeah, absolutely. It is just you know this episode feels like it makes the mistake that is like a classic like bad Doctor Who mistake, which is. Which in this is not a bad episode of Doctor Who, but it makes it the mistake that almost every bad episode of Doctor Who does make, which is to make the monster completely unrelated to the plot. Yes. Um, and it's just like it's it feels like it has a monster in it because it has to have a monster in it. And it's like honestly, I would have been way more invested in this whole episode if it was most of the same shit. Only instead of weird teeth face man, who also, by the way, it doesn't make any sense to have an alien bounty hunter going around and like putting teeth in his face. Because if it's a bunch of aliens, they're not all going to have fucking teeth. And they're certainly not all going to look like human teeth. And that just makes no fucking sense. Why is he going and making a very species specific feature the thing he makes his reward for killing people? You know, it's just a really weird choice. It would be like if you went around and like made tails the thing that you cut off of like the other species that you had and like hung them around your neck as a necklace. And then you ran it on land on earth and killed a human. And you're like shit out of luck because humans don't got tails, asshole. You dumb idiot. Why'd you take something so specific? Um, but yeah, anyways, if it was not that weird teeth face man guy and was just the cool tentacle thing that I thought was like, that's a cool monster. I liked cool and it looks, tentacle thing, yeah. Yeah, it was it had a very different feel and like aesthetic to it than, than other like Doctor Who monsters have had. And it felt like, a, oh, this is different and the effects work really well. And that whole scene on the train was, was I think, the best like Doctor focused scene in like, like, you know, had all this like dramatic tension and, and the monster was cool. Um, and then you get introduced to 
like a Torchwood reject, which is what that dude in the power armor kind of felt like. It was like he didn't even have like the whimsy of a Doctor Who villain because they were going for this more grounded, serious kind of thing. He felt like a monster that fell out of Torchwood or like the class spinoff or something like that. And and that was just like a a weird left turn the episode made. And it's always very frustrating when the episode introduces an element that's like, this is so cool. And then like after the first act of the episode, they're like, but actually let's, let's, let's throw the, away the cool thing and do the lame thing that nobody wants to see. Yeah, if I, if I have two concerns about Chris Chibnall, it's that, one, we, we still have not seen a great episode of Doctor Who from him. I hope it happens. It's just yeah. he has a thinner resume than other people who have, you know, done this show. And, 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 you know, Russell T. Davies, like, came in on a really good episode of Doctor Who. So you felt like, okay, this is, this is working. Um, this is, you know, I would say this is the weakest of the introduction stories in Modern Who. Not that it's bad by any means. It's not. Um, but I just, I need to see more from Chris Chibnall on that level. And his other piece of the Doctor Who resume is he was the showrunner on the first two seasons of Torchwood. Um, right, yeah. Which... And when you make the Torchwood connection, and I was kind of feeling that a little bit too. I've seen less of Torchwood than you have, and I'm just like, I, I hope Torchwood is enough of a thing of the past that it, this is the first, the only time that we like make that connection in our heads. Uh, again, he has many other very good things on his resume, so I don't worry too much. And again, this episode is you know mostly competent and and more than competent in the areas where it really really needs it. Uh, again, the the mistakes it makes are not uncommon Doctor Who mistakes or something. Yeah, and there and it's also like mistakes that Chris Chibnall has made in the past when writing Doctor Who. Like like I think it, not necessarily in the like it's totally disconnected from the plot. Wait, no, no, I take that back. The the ending of Power of Three, you think that it's going to be connected to the plot, and then it actually isn't when it's revealed. So Chris Chibnall still has maybe outside of Journey to the Center of the TARDIS, which has the literal reset button, the most just fucking deus ex machina bullshit resolution of Doctor Who, and I think he maybe even ekes out the literal reset button because he almost has the literal reset button in the, in the Power of Three. So, I, yeah, that, I'm with you that, like, those are still concerns um, of a Chris Chibnall's Doctor Who writing and that, like, he just historically has not done the monster, like, villain side of the episodes well when he's written them. His but other luckily, episode is 42, the David Tennant one that I could not tell you the first thing about. It's so forgettable. Yeah, I watched that more recently, so I vaguely remember that it's like um, the sun alien gets inside of your brain and makes you kill stuff. That's yeah. what that one is. Yeah. Um, it's okay. So, yeah. Yeah, so it's like... But luckily, the thing with Doctor Who is that, you know, most of the episodes are not written by the showrunner. So even if Chris Chibnall never gets over those issues, because, you know, like RTD and Stephen Moffat both had flaws in their writing that appeared in most of their episodes that like, especially when you got very used to some of like the Moffatisms, it could become a bit grating, um, particularly once you got to like season seven, where he was clearly distracted with Sherlock and all that other shit. Um that, but even with all of that, there, there's all these other great people working on the show and other people writing these episodes. I'm really excited to see what the other elements he's brought to the show bring for oh, course, those yeah. other writers and their perspectives. And, and I'm looking forward to seeing if we get cool new kinds of monsters that are only possible with like this like aesthetic the show's going for. Yeah. So uh, the one other thing about the plot is... I'm kind of astounded at how detached Grace's death feels from the main action of the climax. Yes. Like, on second viewing, I realized, okay, what she's doing is technically important to the plot because that's the crane that the Doctor is on, and it would fall down and it would kill all the our good guys. 
But it does not make that explicit. The visual language does not make that explicit. There's no line about that. It's just it's on one of the cranes. Like it's so it's it feels like so detached. They don't draw a clear like spatial connection between the importance of what she's doing and what the other person people are doing. And also like what she does is like stupid and risky. And it's like, that could be avoided. You could kill that weird tentacle thing in a way that would not obviously and manifestly result in your death if you thought about it for more than five seconds. Like, it it feels like one of those things of, it's reverse engineered, Grace has to die so that these character things can happen, and then at the last possible second they thought about, oh shit, how is she going to die in this episode? Uh, Electrocution falls off the thing, blah blah blah. You know, it's, it's very messy. Yeah, and it's something of where if I had one um, com- like criticism or complaint about the production of the episode is, and I think it manifests there probably the strongest. There are like some editing issues in this episode. Yes. I feel like that like there's the visual style of it is very striking, but there are like some cuts that I that are there that I feel like this is like either this cut is way too late or you're cutting between two things where it's like because there were I didn't watch the episode through twice. Um, but I, you know, I obviously watched it through once and then I went back and watched some select scenes again to look at some stuff before we had this conversation. And there was one cut in particular I wanted to go back to see that I think it's when the, it's, you know, because it, it cuts to the doctor and the gang, like going up and attacking the like tentacle thing that's on the roof. And right before that, what it cuts from is the, the monster, the, the guy in the power armor, like leaving the thing and attacking the guy. And it feels like that cut Everything about that shot and, like, how it cuts feels like it is cutting to the doctor confronting him. And it's so out of nowhere and bizarre. And then it does the reverse shot to the tentacle thing. You're like, oh, right. Like, I haven't seen the tentacle thing in forever. I have no idea where the tentacle thing is. I have no idea where we are. And it's like there are multiple moments in the episode where I feel spatially disconnected from everything. That's one moment. The grace moment is one of those. There are also Uh a couple of, like, moments with the doctor where it feels like... There are lines that should have a lot of punch that are very funny, and 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 Jodie Whittaker delivers them really well. But like the editing doesn't quite nail it because it hangs for too long, and so it's like you're sitting with this joke in a way. Like there's just moments like that that really didn't work for me. Here's two moments of editing that because I actually noticed all of that too. And there's actually some even simpler problems in the editing in this one, where there's two moments where they cut from Yasmin to Yasmin doing something yes. else. And it feels like it's the it's the kind of cut where you're supposed to be going to another character, but instead it's her later in time doing a different task. But the episode's editing makes no clear distinction of that, and it's just confusing. It happens twice, once on the train, where Yasmin and Ryan are like, all right, let's go search the train. And she she moves out of frame, and it cuts to someone moving into another frame, as she thinks could be someone else. But it's Yaz in a different yeah. part. It's the weirdest thing. It's like a shot-reverse shot with the same character. And it is, both times I saw it, completely disorienting. I'm like, who's this character? Oh, that's still Yaz. Uh, what the fuck just happened? It's a very weird temporal cut. And then they do it again in the weird abandoned warehouse thing where they're like... Um, Oh, what's that going on in that computer over there? Uh-huh. And Yaz looks at it, and then they cut, and she's like going through a drawer. And just the way they do it, again, it's it looks like a shot reverse shot to the same character, which is bizarre. It's it's like it's it's sort of like breaking the one hundred eighty degree rule. That's not what they're doing, but it's that kind of effect of like if it's done poorly, you're like it just disorients. Yeah, no, you're you're one hundred percent right because I have noticed both of those. In both times, it feels it felt specifically like. There's like a scene with the there's doctor a, missing. Yes, it felt like there's like a deleted scene. 
yeah, you like you were supposed to cut to a little scene with the doctor and then cut back to this and it's gone. Another like little tiny one that's that's this is like not as bad as those other ones, but it annoyed me because this is another scene I watched twice. Was the montage making the sonic screwdriver? There's that great shot at the beginning of the montage where Jodie Whittaker puts on the big goggles, and then the very next shot she doesn't have the goggles on. And it's like. But she looks like I. She looks so good with those big fucking like welders goggles. I want that to just be part of her fucking costume, and she's not wearing it for like most of the montage. Well, what they do like it's actually even more yeah. egregious than what you're saying. It's because I noticed this both times. She puts on the big awesome welders goggles. She has them off in the next shot, and then she puts them on again with the bigger welders mask. So you see her gearing up to do the welding twice. It's a very weird montage choice. Yeah, so so that's it's it's something that feels particularly incongruous with the episode because of how visually striking so much of it can be when it's just like these big long shots and it's little like character beats. But yeah, like the editing is like weirdly like odd and like sort of off the wall in a way that you just almost never see in anything. It reminds me of like when we did the Batman v Superman episode, and it's like you almost because editing is so often at the very least extremely competent. You almost never have to point out bad editing. You usually have to like point out, man, the editing and that was really good. It's it's so it's, it's sometimes it's very hard to talk about bad editing because you just never have to fucking do it. Well, because bad editing is usually not anything the editor has done. Bad editing is usually a honestly a directorial flaw. It's usually the kind of thing right. of like the shot choices you've made and the sequence and progression of the episode is the problem. Like, you've gotten this setup and you've gotten this setup, but you did not account for the footage you would need to go from this setup to this setup, and then the editor is kind of stranded. That's the sort of thing that I think has happened here. I think if you looked at, like, the whoever the... I don't know who edited this episode, but their work, right. I doubt there's anything... Like, you don't get to be an editor on television without being extraordinarily good at what you do. You know? It's, it's a highly technically uh, complicated job. So, yeah. It's, it's a weird issue to talk about, but it's definitely there. But, I mean, on the flip side, we should talk about what is good in the production of this episode, which is a lot of other things. I think the cinematography is very good. It's very striking. It is This episode is mostly set at night. And a lot of times when you see an episode of television that's all set at night, it's because they're shooting in Vancouver and it's really cheap. You know, like, it's usually right. to save on money. Maybe they were doing that here. I don't know. It doesn't look like a cheap episode. It's one of the few, like, episodes of sci-fi television I could point to and say it's completely shot at night and it does not look cheap, you know? It actually looks very, very expensive and nice and cinematic on screen. I think it makes good use of the low-lighting environments. There's a lot of striking shots that have, like, very few lights in the scene and they use, like, one lighting source. It's very nicely composed. I think that widescreen frame honestly does make a difference um it's not just cosmetic i mean this is the third aspect ratio doctor who has ever had you know it's been four by three it's been 69 now it's two to one and i think they make interesting cinematic you know style use of that space um there's a lot of shots that i think you know convey things visually very well like the scene you talked about with ryan doing the bike over and over again and the doctor watching so i think there's a lot of good direction on those levels even if some of like I would say, like, spatial geometry is, is the weird thing that this episode has problems with, you know? Yeah. Yeah, but it definitely, yeah, you're 100% right that, that they make use of the new aspect ratio. And, like, the some of those, like, wide vistas are just extremely striking. There's another shot near the beginning of the episode with um, Ryan, his nan, and Graham sitting on that, like, cliff overlooking the town. That's just a gorgeous shot. And it's... It, 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 
it's so different than how Doctor Who has has ever looked. Like, obviously very different than classic Doctor Who, but also, you know, in the Moffat years and with Peter Capaldi, it, it's... It's a really interesting, different kind of aesthetic that that is reminds me a lot of Broadchurch because there's also a lot of that sort of like English town, big wide open vistas, big kind of like plains of of England. You know, they're not really plains, but like the moors or whatever they yeah. are. Um, yeah, that that side of the episode works so well, and it's one of those things that makes that beginning like ten minutes or so extremely striking. Is is it sort of puts its best foot forward on the visual side and and with the character stuff. Uh, absolutely. I will say the thing that disoriented me most about this episode is the music. Um, because for mm-hmm. the first time yeah. in 13 years, 2005 to 2018 or 2017, we had Murray Gold doing the music. He built one of the most distinctive musical libraries in the history of television. Maybe the most distinct, because I don't know who else has done, you know, 10 full seasons of score for an ongoing serialized TV series. Like that's nigh unprecedented and uh just did all this amazing work and so came to like define the like flavor of modern doctor who for me um because he was with you know four different doctors and different production teams and all these things and now we have this new composer segun akinola he's going for a very different effect it's less theme driven it seems to me it is sparser. It's more minimalistic. This is not the big, like, John Williams-esque orchestral score that Murray Gold did. I think it's good. I think it's good music. And I think in some scenes it's very interesting and striking. But it is very different than Doctor Who has sounded uh, in in the 21st century. And it's a huge shift. Yeah, definitely. It's something where I feel like I don't really have an opinion on it yet. I think it yeah. like it works fine for this episode. I didn't necessarily love the montage music so much. It felt like maybe because it's like there's no theme or something to attach it to. It's like, you know, montages need like some really spicy music to get me going. And this was just felt a little bit like mm, it's sort of there. Um, but yeah, if it's going for that more kind of like atmospheric thing with like the score kind of coming in a little bit in some of the bigger moments, that's fine. But yeah, it's it's definitely hard to get a full sense of what the music is going to be for the show just based on this one episode. Whether or not, like, because there might be like some like striking mu- uh, musical cues in this episode that we don't really associate yet with because we haven't heard it enough and we haven't like seen it used in enough different situations, and so we don't have like the affection built for the score. It's very hard for me to tell like how I'm going to feel about the music, you know, like five episodes from now. Absolutely, I won't say I have an opinion about it yet. I have a worry that after one hour, it sounds like generic 2010s film score, Mm -hmm. which is, it's not that important. It feels kind of like an afterthought, and I don't really notice it. And I think one of the things that has been really special about Doctor Who is that you could never say that about modern Doctor Who. Um, If we think back to other Doctor introduction stories, The Eleventh Hour... You remember the moment where Matt Smith steps out and says, I am the Doctor, not just because of how it is staged, but because Murray Gold comes forth with one of the most recognizable musical themes in the history of television. When Peter Capaldi squares off with the clockwork man at the end of Deep Breath, you remember that moment because the Twelfth Doctor's theme comes in. When you meet Rose in Rose, you hear her theme. And when you meet the Doctor, you get that cool ethereal Doctor theme. Like, music can just add so much and I think it's 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 near being a lost art in filmmaking. I'm really worried about what has happened to film and television music because it is just, it feels like an afterthought in everything. And 
maybe I, I hope I will not feel that way by the end of this season of Doctor Who. I'm worried because this it's not just that it doesn't sound like Murray Gold. It wasn't going to sound like Murray Gold. That's fine and I get it. It's that it doesn't particularly sound like anything yet and I want it to sound like something. I don't want Doctor Who to fall to the trap of because even like classic Doctor Who never has music as good as what Murray Gold has done for modern Doctor Who in part because they just never had the time or budget to do that. But classic Doctor Who music is often very distinctive and you notice it and there's some phenomenal scores in classic Doctor Who um, and I just, I, again, I want it to be a part of the episode that is notable and good and important. And that's the, the one thing it kind of is not in this episode. So if I have any worry, that's it. Yeah. Because it, I mean, it definitely, you know, the only moment in the episode where music stood out to me in like a really good way was when you had that little bit of the theme play when the doctor popped up and it was like, oh yeah, the doctor who theme. And it's like, oh, but we don't actually, are, I guess we're not going to the doctor who theme. You're just teasing me with it, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah, like the, the because I am with you in that it feels like very generic like TV music. Um, and it, but I I want to hedge it a little bit with we have only seen one episode, so I give a little bit of benefit of the doubt. But like I suspect it's going to continue to be like that. Yeah, so we'll see. Uh, all right, what else is there to say? Okay, the we've talked around the sequence. Some editorial choices aside, the scene where the Doctor is like. Oh, fuck it, I can build my own sonic screwdriver and then goes and does it by melting down an entire bucket of spoons and doing all this stuff and then comes out with that awesome, just gnarly new 13th Doctor sonic screwdriver. I fucking loved all that. I, it's a, it's a yeah. great little sequence and it made me laugh very hard because Jodie Whittaker also does a lot of very good, funny prop comedy in the middle of a lot of those scenes and I liked watching the Doctor have just this giant fucking like flamethrower down into like the bucket of spoons she's using to melt down for metal it's very good yeah that's a very good moment i do like the new sonic screwdriver even if if i think man fucking peter capaldi's last sonic screwdriver was so good and i'm so bummed that we only got that one season with it but that's not this screwdriver's fault um i do think it's very funny that she makes the whole crack about like the swiss army knife but it's not a knife and yet she has easily the most knife-like screwdriver that looks like you could fucking you know because it's obviously it's got the screwdriver in and then the other end of it is all pointy it looks like you could fucking stab someone with that thing it looks like it would take her about five minutes to make that into a shiv yeah exactly like you could 100% poke someone's eye out with that sonic screwdriver which is not something I could say for any other sonic screwdriver that's not a criticism and it's not like a compliment I don't know what it is but I find it very funny because it felt like that line had been written before they made the design for the screwdriver and they never like stopped to think about what it actually looks like but that's good it's it's a good scene Uh, I also like the moment uh, around that time where she talks about regeneration uh, we've gotten yes. plenty of good scenes of doctors talking about regeneration, but I thought this one had an interesting window into it where she talks about it's like rediscovering what you are, but also what you are called to be and going on instinct to trying to discover what this new you is. I thought that was a unique, new, poetic way to say it, and then Jodie Whittaker performed it very well, so I liked that moment a lot. Yeah, I particularly liked that little line about having to rely on all these new instincts because it felt like... That that line felt to me like one of the lines that probably it feels like Judy Whittaker as an actress looked at the script and saw that line and was like, "This is, this is how I'm playing this." Of like, mm-hmm. I'm just like reacting to things. I'm going on instinct. Like like as the Doctor as a character feels so much in that mode in this episode, it, it felt really appropriate and and like you said, it gives a slightly different perspective on it that felt really true to the character. Yes. Let's talk about the costume. 
We get it at the end, but before we get it at the end, we do get a nice full hour of Jodie Whittaker and Peter Capaldi's tattered clothes. It's one of my disappointments with Deep Breath is we only got like two minutes of Peter Capaldi and Matt Smith's tattered clothes. And I like when you get just a nice full hour, like the 11th hour of the Doctor in the previous Doctor's costume. And we get that here. And the only downside is Jodie Whittaker looks really good in Peter Capaldi's tattered costume. It really kind of fits her. Yeah, I, I particularly love the little sequence you get at the end when she's with Ryan in his house and she's taking off the coat and just standing there with like her hands in the pockets. It's like she's so comfortable in those clothes in a way that has like never really been true. Like it's because it's always seemed like when you do that, the the doctor looks so out of place immediately in the old old clothes because like usually because it's like they literally just don't fit them at all you know like David Tennant and Christopher Eccleston's like jacket is so huge on him in those little moments you get with him in that outfit um, but yeah so it, it it fits her so well she definitely rocks it I like the the weird tattered coat it's one of the things that makes that shot at the end um with ryan on the bike falling over you get her kind of silhouetted um in black because the whole suit is black against this like big bright sun is that like the coat is so tattered that it looked like it looked like when you're at the end of one of the arkham games and batman's coat or like cape is all ripped to shit and so it's like you get this really interesting texture of all the light coming through all the holes in the coat it looked really good I also like that, for some reason, the Doctor keeps that fucking thing on, I guess, for an entire week or something. Because unless <laughs> unless Grace's funeral is, like, later that day, she is still in it, like, a solid week later. And I'm like, did she – has she taken a shower? Has she gotten out of those clothes at all? Is it just – she just keeps putting on that one outfit? Has it been washed? I don't know. This is a Doctor who does not seem particularly concerned with their clothing. And I'm totally fine with that. It just did make me laugh. <laughs> Yeah, there's definitely like a moment where yeah, where you have to stop for a second and realize yeah, a lot of time has passed. You've just been standing here with this like weird raggedy old coat that doesn't quite fit you for I like a long time, Doc. This, this is the only time I know of, correct me if I'm wrong, where someone else has to remind the doctor to go get their costume. Where like yeah. Yasmin has to say, like, Doctor, are you ever gonna get out of those clothes? And the doctor has to be like, Oh shit, right, I haven't thought of that. And it's very in character. I one hundred percent believe that the doctor just would not think about that, you know, in one of these mini regenerations he slash she she has had. But I do like that. I love that they go to basically a, a British goodwill to get her clothes. That's just a little it makes her ensemble make more sense when you think of its mm-hmm. like donated clothing. I like that a lot. And then I do think the actual costume, we only get it in action for about five minutes. It, it, I think it fits her doctor, her characterization, and her physicality extremely well, I, especially the trench yeah. coat part of it. Yes, and I like that it's like these big kind of bright colors because mm-hmm. that's the, the aesthetic of the show stood out to me the strongest when it was using color and it was using light. And it's those moments at the beginning and the end where it's like this very stark sunlight and they get to do good stuff with that. That why well, I do think I agreed with what you said earlier that like it they it doesn't look cheap when they shoot at night but it does feel like they're missing something from like a potential to use you know because Doctor Who is this big bright colorful quirky whimsical yeah. kind of thing um, that yeah it feels very natural when she puts on the the outfit it's got a big rainbow on the chest and that kind of stuff it's great it's it's like the sober you know good version of a you know fifth or sixth Doctor costume. Right? Yes. Of like going crazy with colors and rainbows. This is still like, this is not a sober, like, you know, Peter Capaldi, Matt Smith costume where like the doctor has put on like a nice suit or something. This is the doctor decided to have some fun with her outfit. 
Um, but it's not, I have a, like, a rainbow, like, I have a Technicolor dream coat. Yeah, it doesn't feel like a producer walked into the room and slammed, like, a big book of demands onto the table and said, this is the costume you're going to make. It feels like it was a collaborative choice made creatively yes. by the people making the show. Yes. So I'm excited to see more of the costume. I'm excited to see more of the character. Um, what else is there to say about this episode? I mean, it again, as we said earlier, notably, we never see the TARDIS. The episode ends with a cliffhanger where the Doctor yeah. uh, teleports out to space and accidentally takes her new friends, and they are all abandoned in the blackness of space, setting us up for a, what I assume will be a little Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy homage when they are suddenly rescued at the last second by a passing spaceship. But uh, yes, for now, our, our characters are in limbo. Yeah, I do really like that whole sequence going into the cliffhanger of them making this weird teleportation device. And it's just like, even though, you know, everybody watching this knows that everybody is going to get sucked into it, it still made me smile when, you know, it's this big like, yeah, okay, bye guys, I gotta go. And then everybody just gets sucked away. I kind of wish, like, the whole building just got sucked in because it's so clear, like, Doctor, you have no idea what the fuck you're making. Like, this doesn't look safe at all. And I'm kind of disappointed that it was only the four people that got sucked in and not, like, half the Earth, you know? It's yeah. like, there's no shielding, nothing's contained, you're just big, standing in a big open room with a fucking microwave and, like, a dude with, like, a light switch. <laughs> what are you doing? I um, do like yeah, this as a, a potential, like, new character quirk for the Doctor. I don't know if this is going to continue, but we have two sequences of the 13th Doctor just deciding to just DIY it. And I mm-hmm. I like the idea of a doctor who just decides to MacGyver shit and not be very good at it. That seems like a very Doctor Who character trait, but one we maybe haven't seen a ton of. It's almost it's very like Tom Baker-esque. So I would like to see uh, Jodie Whittaker continue to just build things and only have like partial success at it. That would be very funny to me. Yeah, definitely. Like both, both of those moments work really well with the sonic screwdriver and then her weird teleportation device. And then, yeah, it's it's... It feels like at least a little bit confirmed for now that the what we suspected of the TARDIS being mostly absent, at least for a while for this season, that feels true. Like, that feels like we are going to be space hopping for a little bit, at least for the next episode. We are out in the middle of nowhere with no anchoring. And that's exciting, and I like I like that they went with that direction. And I, I hope they I hope that that's not like the whole season because I think that would maybe be a bit much for ten whole episodes to be like that. But at least for a while, I hope they keep up this like just madcap like race pop around the galaxy. Like, how the fuck do we find a missing TARDIS? Let's let's do our best. I think that's a good way to frame a season of Doctor Who. Yeah, well, I'm really curious because I. I, I kind of agree. It would be a little weird if we went the full season without the TARDIS, but I also don't know. It kind of feels like you're either going to have the TARDIS in the first episode or you're going to, it's the place you're going to. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. so I'm not sure where in the middle we would find it, but maybe we will. It, you know, it could be very much like the, um, Tom Baker's first season, which he starts in the TARDIS, but at past that point, that whole season is he's being hopped around by other things and doesn't get back to it until the very end. And then that's when they, they go off. Um, and that leads you to Terror of the Zygons. But, yeah, um, yeah so I'm curious if it's going to have that kind of quality where they're just being, like, jumped from... <laughs> the, the the characters are just being jumped from story to story with no choice about where they're going. Uh, that can be very fun. So, And it's not a kind of thing that Doctor Who has done so many times that it would be uh, repetitive or anything. It would feel fairly new. Modern Who has never done that, so... yeah. I think the other alternative that they could take it is more of that kind of like earlier John Pertwee like 
I have the TARDIS, like, because it might be that they get the TARDIS in the next couple of episodes, but it's still busted from fucking blowing up at the end of of Twice Upon a Time. So it might be that little bit of... Because I always loved, you know, when the Doctor had, like, the fucking TARDIS console, like, outside of the TARDIS shell and was, like, tinkering with it and teleporting shit all over the place. That's how you got, like, Inferno and all that stuff happening, ending up in parallel universes. So that would be fun and fit with, like, the, like like crazy engineer thing the doctor has going on in this episode if she's like having to fiddle with the TARDIS all the time because it's totally fucking busted for the for the next bit I would I would fucking love that that'd be great I, I kind of want that now uh, mm-hmm. I'm very curious where they're going to go with it and I'm also super curious to see what their TARDIS interior is going to be once they land on one because so much of the production design is so radically different from like recent Doctor Who which has kept with the like circular console big circular room it, it's got it got better and better each time but it was like a clear evolution uh, each step and i'm i almost i i kind of expect it to look a little more like rtd's tardis based on the way the sonic screwdriver looks but who knows yeah, we'll we'll see I, if you know maybe they'll do like the good version of the rtd tardis because i think there's a there's good kernels of an idea in that tardis it's just too dark and it wasn't good with like the digital cameras they had at the time you know so it never really worked, but I think you could do something like it, and it could be interesting. You know, maybe she makes her whole TARDIS console room out of melted down spoons. That's entirely possible. <laughs> maybe, maybe we just bring back the uh, Paul McGann TARDIS from the movie. I'd be, I'd be good with that. Fuck, fuck yeah! Or you go with the whole weird, like wood paneled secondary console room that Tom Baker rocked <laughs> yes. a little bit just because he could. Yeah, I love that one. All right, any other thoughts on Doctor Who: The Woman Who Fell to Earth? I'm I'm just I'm happy that Doctor Who's back even Me if too. this episode was up and down, you know, it like it it the things it most needed to get right, it got very right. The things that got wrong are things that if an episode of Doctor Who gets wrong, I'm not like busted up about. I can I can shrug this one off and, yeah. and you know, we'll 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 laugh I mean, we've laughed already now, but we'll continue to laugh in the future about dumb tooth face man and, and fucking DNA bombs and that horse shit the way we laugh about like the ending of Power of 3. Yes. Um but yeah, I'm I'm also just really excited about getting more Doctor Who next week. I'm very excited to find out how the fuck Chris Noth is apparently in an episode of Doctor Who because you had the whole actor roundup and it's like Chris Noth, you know, star of fucking Sex of the City and Law and Order Criminal Intent is in an episode of Doctor Who at some point. So I don't know how that's happening, but that's exciting. Uh, the Doctor is told that now that she is a woman, she should watch Sex in the City and she teleports them into the universe of Sex in the City and they have an episode... I don't know enough about Sex in the City to make this joke. I really don't. She she tries to teleport into the universe of Sex in the City, but she accidentally ends up in the universe of Law and Order Criminal Intent. I'd watch... Okay, that sounds good. To, yeah. yeah, solve a, a serial killer case. But then Chris Nuss' character isn't actually there because Vincent D'Onofrio's character, Agent Gordon, is much more interesting. And so they have him there instead. Um, and that would be great because Vincent D'Onofrio would be a much more interesting actor to have in Doctor Who than Chris Nuss, who's fine, but not very memorable. And, and I mean, it was just the only reason I'm even pointing it out is because, like, I had not thought about Chris Nuff in probably, like, fucking eight years or so. It's been a long time since I've seen everything, anything he was in. And so when he popped up and his name was on screen, I'm like, oh, my God, that's right. That's weird. You're a weird, act, like, American actor to be a Doctor Who, but okay. All right. Anything else we want to say before we uh, wrap it up tonight? You know, they never said um, there's no Doctor Who name drop in this. And so that's a bold new era. I can't end this podcast just screaming Doctor Who at the top of my lungs. Maybe have to put that to rest. Maybe that'll be the boldest change from the Stephen Moffat era to the Chris Chibnall era is fewer puns. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, 
we'll watch more Doctor Who. I don't know. I'm I'm out of ideas of how to end this podcast. Doctor Who.